Hello and welcome to episode 351 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you in different locations today. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. And I'm coming in from Brandon, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks, and Bruce. It's the Bruce Irvin <laughs> edition of the Pelton cast. It, it is not. I mean, honestly, it's the Ichiro edition of the podcast. But let me tell you, there has never, there has never been a more fitting beer that we have drank on any episode of this podcast. Wait, wait, I can't be wrong with that. He's not number 51? Reserve He's never won number 51? No, I think he has. I'm just saying he's not as the oh, most okay. famous I thought you were, you were like, Seattle it's sports. not. I thought you were saying that I was wrong. No. Okay, it is the Bruce Irvin. <laughs> I do not recognize edition. any other 51s in well, Seattle sports history. Thank you. I'm confident you recognize at least one other 51. And it's fitting that this week's beer, and I want to make this an annual tradition, when Mariners pitchers and catchers report for spring training, is they did earlier Wednesday. Spring is coming, even though it's not earlier this week. It was like a, it was a spring snow. I have to say, <laughs> like it, it did snow. Yes, there is a cold front coming. It'll be a high of like 34 next week, but it's it's a springy 34 degrees in snow. I loved the the photo or video of baby and baby your fantasy genius, your oldest and middle sons practicing their pitching with snow on the crowd today. It was great stuff. <laughs> That's how we do it around here. <laughs> Truly but great stuff. Not, not a lot of players in the majors. Not, not a lot. <laughs> Mostly from uh, sunnier places. Play baseball year-round. A lot from California and Florida. Anyways, I want to make it an annual tradition because it comes out this time of year as well, appropriately, that for this podcast, when pitchers and catchers report, we drink from our friends at No Boat Brewing with David Skiba, who we had on the pod last year, third Pelton brother, the Jandy Ronson double IPA. So, And also appropriate because, of course, Randy Johnson also... The Randy Johnson episode of the pod. That's beautiful. I you it? said it's not. I just no. I said it's not the Bruce Irvin episode. Well, yeah. When you said it was not the Bruce, I'll accept it being the Randy Johnson episode. Uh, to describe this, our insanely scrummy double dry hopped double IPA is loaded with at freestyle hops Nelson Seven and a heavy helping of at Hollingberry and Sun hops mosaic for lush lemongrass, dank blueberry, passion fruit, and citrus peel notes. All right, so let's crack this open, and uh, we can get to our toast. Before getting to our guest this week, we're thrilled to have Mike Sean Dugar of The Athletic and the Seahawks Man to Mad podcast back on the pod. We're hoping to have him. We can't guarantee it yet. We're hoping to have him at PeltonCast Live, coming up on April 21st at Belltown Yacht Club. You know what to expect from PeltonCast Live. Tickets are going fast for this one. I will say we announced it a lot earlier than we have any others. April 21st, Peltoncast Live. The sun will be setting a lot later than it is today in Seattle, Washington. I can guarantee this. We can't guarantee Mike Sean will be there. Feeling good. Feeling good about Mike Sean being there. He has an open invitation for Peltoncast Live anytime, any place on the face of the earth that Peltoncast Live is happening. Where, where else are we going to do Peltoncast Live but in the Seattle area? The, I cannot guarantee Mike We're going to take it on the there. road? The thing I can guarantee is the sun will go down a lot later than it did today. We were talking about springtime. Yes, we are talking PDT 
No PST, baby. We were talking. It is on April 21st, I think 7 p.m. PDT at Belltown Yacht Club in lovely Belltown, Seattle. Don't debate us about which street it's on. Uh, <laughs> you know what to expect from Pelton Cast Live, though. Come hungry. It's on It's on first, isn't it? Or is it on Western? I think it's on second. Uh, uh, come hungry. Trivia. Well, the, actually, I meant bingo. There'll be trivia, too. Uh, bingo. Special guests. Surprises. I, I did a little tease of the merch. There's going to be some extraordinarily fresh merch for this one. I have to say, this is it is the it is the best merch that we've ever had. We've had some very beautiful hats from the Pelton cast. This is the one that I am most excited about. We're ordering the most of it. I I swear not, to God. Also not a hat. I it's all yeah, we're not doing three hats. I cannot wait for this one. Uh and possibly related to the merch. Uh, fingers crossed. We haven't 100% confirmed this yet. I've said that we have. But the whole <laughs> cast of Talkin' Taco Time together for the first time in history at a Pelton Cast Live. All four of the co-hosts of Talkin' Taco Time. Plus special guests there. It is going to be an incredible night at Belltown Yacht Club. Get your tickets now. They're go- they're going uh, relatively fast. You didn't My mention going fast. You didn't mention NFL Draft Preview with Danny Kelly of The Ringer. NFL Draft Guru. So going to be a lot of great stuff. Looking forward to it. Uh, let's go to this week's toast. Starting, we'll talk about this a little more with Mike, Sean, but uh, congrats to Seahawks quarterback coach Dave Canales, who has reportedly been hired as Tampa Bay's offensive coordinator, which he confirmed on Twitter after interviewing for the <laughs> Ravens offensive coordinator job earlier this offseason. Canales came to Seattle with Pete Carroll, starting out as an offensive quality control coach. We'll also talk more about that and holding the wide receiver coach and passing game coordinator titles before returning to quarterback coach last season, the title he previously had in 2018 and 2019. So it, a well-deserved opportunity for Dave Canales after an extended uh, stint with the Seahawks. In less happiness, the final World Baseball Classic rosters have been announced, and Sam Sam Nofrio Hagerty is not on them. Will not be representing Italy in the World Baseball Classic. Well, it would be an incredible thing for Sam Nofrio Hagerty to be representing his home of ancestral home yes. of Italy. Uh, I personally think that this is a, a W here for Mariners fans. Look, we don't need to be fucking around on the World Baseball Classic. Look, it's fun. It's nice. It's cool. The season starts in April. It's not about the World Baseball Classic. It's about the World Goddamn Series coming to Seattle, Washington. This is not a Mariners hot take or anything. We'll get to it, that. It almost was. Let's be let's be clear here. There will be some predictions of the World Series coming to Seattle. <laughs> but that is what we're building towards. Something bigger than the World Baseball Classic. And that is for the first time in history, a World Series coming to Seattle. And that is what Sam Hagerty is focused on. There so, you go. I, I, I think it's more about we, we don't need to, to weep for Sam Hagerty not playing for the Italian national team because literally has anybody ever heard of an Italian baseball national team? I'm sorry. Like oh, Matt Festa has. That's yes. This, it's it's not quite the same as the club that they won't let into the World Cup because they're too good. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't actually know what you mean on that one. Lastly, a farewell to Will Bruin, who signed with Austin FC as a free agent after spending six seasons with the Sounders, scoring 27 goals across all competition. 
Bruin was part of the team that won the 2019 MLS Cup championship, which came when he was rehabbing an ACL tear and played in the MLS Cup final in 2017-2020. Bruin's most memorable Sounders goal came in those 2020 Western Conference finals against Minnesota as he scored the first of three goals to help the Sounders come back from a 2-0 deficit when he entered the match in the 73rd minute. So, uh... Uh, a great six-year run for Will Bruin as a striker, mostly off the bench, and uh, wish him good luck with Austin. Yeah, and I think most importantly, I just want to tell Will Bruin, I'm so jealous that you get to move to Austin. <laughs> You're going to eat so many great tacos, Will Bruin. You're going to have a phenomenal time. Any person who could ever move to Austin from Seattle, Washington, I'm just devastated that that isn't me. <laughs> well, imagine if he had gone to play for the Charleston Battery. <laughs> are they in the MLS this year? No, they're still in the uh, USL. Are they? They're coming to the MLS though. Uh, no, I don't think so. At some point, they are. Seems like, unlikely. MLS They'll... is going to be expanded to 50, 60, 70, 80 teams. Maybe also depends if we ever get promotion and relegation in MLS. But uh, on that note, let's get into this week's interview. It's been too long. We're excited to welcome back to the pod one of our favorite guests from The Athletic covering the Seahawks and the Seahawks Man to Man podcast. Please welcome back Mike Sean Dugar. What up, guys? Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. We're now, we did kind of an initial offseason preview with Ben Baldwin right after the 49ers loss. And now a month has passed since then. And also we're into the actual NFL offseason with the Super Bowl concluding and the Chiefs being crowned champions and kind of eager to revisit it, especially because it feels like the converse, tone of the conversation on a few things has shifted, including to some degree with your reporting about Geno Smith. And, you know, it wasn't until Ben kind of pointed us to the comparable contracts that we started thinking, oh man, $30 million might be a floor for Gino and you reported on the athletic that at the senior bowl, you know, the kind of word you were getting is that's actually maybe more of a ceiling for him than, than a floor. So, you know, kind of what, what were you hearing? It was just going down there. That was my first time at the senior bowl, um, by the way, and super hard to get there. Don't, don't recommend from Seattle, uh, <laughs> but it, it is, it was, uh, it felt very similar to the combine in 2020, before the world kind of stopped. Um, and I went there trying to figure out, okay, how much is Jadavion Clowney going to get? Um, or maybe that's 20, whatever, whatever combine that was, maybe I got the year wrong, but I was like, you know, I need to figure it out. Cause I think the tag number back then was like 17 something maybe. And like the thought was he's like a $20 million a year player going into that, despite having like three and a half sacks or whatever for the, for the Seahawks um, that season. And I remember coming out of the combine just from talking to people like, oh, there's no way in God's green earth that guy's getting $20 million a year. Not, not just because like, oh, Mike's opinion, he's worth $20 million a year. And I was just like, oh, okay. Enough people I talked to in these steakhouses are very confident that he would be lucky to get like 13, um, which I think is what the Seahawks ended up offering him. And I'm pretty sure is what he ended up signing with uh, for the Titans. It was like one year and 12 that could push to 13. Or something like that. So um, it's it's very interesting how those league wide events go, and I bring that up because that was my kind of feeling going into senior boy. All right, let me see what the what the feeling is on Gino, uh, and then let me go from there. And so yeah, I went into it thinking like you guys thought. Like for example, I get an exercise. There was a, someone I was talking to some people whatever night of the senior bowl it was, and one person act one person who's kind of in the know was like, hey Mike, what do you think? What do you think Gino's gonna get? It's like well. Tag is 32 to tag him again next year would be like 38 ish or something like that. Probably average those two out, 
you know, if I'm Gino's agent using that as some leverage, whatever the middle is, 34, 35. And I got laughed at. Um, and that wasn't the first time I got laughed at with it, uh, such a suggestion. Um, and it was kind of, there was a few things mentioned to me that are going to be important in Gino's negotiations. It's sample size, uh, for one. Um, I've dealt with some agents in the past and um, some agents, former agents will probably go on record as saying, like, usually you don't just get your guy a multi-year deal off of just one year of production. Usually you go in there with, like, your spreadsheet or whatever it is of at least the last two years of production. Like, if you're in the Colin negotiating Jalen Hurts contract, for example, this year, you probably go in there with comparable stats from 2021 and 2022. You probably just wash Jalen's rookie year. You can use it, but not going to help you. Um, same thing if you're negotiating Burroughs deal this year, whoever his guy is, same thing. So usually you at least have two years, you go in there like, look, my guy compares to such and such, he's been this healthy, he's brought, you know, yada, yada, yada. If you want a multi-year deal, that is. Um, so that's probably gonna matter in Geno's negotiation. Do you go from giving a guy three and a half million base to 35 because he because he was an original ballot Pro Bowl guy at age 32? Probably not. Um, and the other thing that was brought to my attention was just an overall feeling from GMs. It just takes one GM to fuck this up, but we're done paying elite prices just for a competent guy. And you guys know that's kind of been how the market is going. It's how, that's how Derek Carr gets $40 million. That's how Kirk Cousins gets fully guaranteed deals that no one else gets other than Deshaun Watson. Like you get like, all right, you're just, a, it'd be too hard to replace you. So here's $40 million. Like eventually GM's going to get tired of doing that. You're tired of paying a Goff or Carson Wentz or whoever and getting stuck in these deals. And the the sentiment that was kind of expressed to me, like Derek Carr might be the first guy to kind of fall victim to that. You could see Jimmy G falling victim to that on the open market. Geno Smith as well. So maybe just not a robust. Danny Dimes. Yeah, Daniel Jones as well. So maybe just perhaps not a, just a robust veteran market. So and then I th- I can't remember how soon before the combine it was, but or excuse me, the senior bowl. It was just good timing that Pro Football Focus had just released its contract projection. So I was able to like send that to some agents and stuff. Like, oh, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do, what's your feel on this? Not necessarily Gino's agent. Like, to be clear, I never talked to uh, him. But just, you know, people around the league. Um, and, yeah, the sentiment was like the PFF number was way off, just mm-hmm. way too high. It was it was just factoring in like what he would theoretically be worth in a normal situation. And my takeaway getting back home on the plane was just like Gino's situation is not normal. There's yeah. no comparable contracts. There's no comparable players. Ryan Tannehill is the closest, and even that's not apples to apples. So um, that I think that's I ended up writing about that later this week too, with some help from Joel Corey, from former NFL agent. The sentiment is just everywhere, at least from the people I talk to. This is this is whatever usual math we do to figure out how much a guy should get paid. It doesn't apply here because there's just no one who just sits the bench for six years or whatever based on performance hops off original ballot pro bowl guy age 32 um and then goes from three and a half million to 30 million. like that's we don't have that in the current cba so there's just all the other stuff we use just probably doesn't apply here at least not as an apples and apples thing mm-hmm. yeah for the record that pff uh projection originally for him was four years 150 million 112.5 million guaranteed so yeah they came in real hot very yeah and i yeah i floated that around i was like i think i remember a screenshot and this is a couple of folks like, what do you think about this uh, and they've been high before uh i remember them being high on a few guys in the past i think the projection for shaquille was initially really high i think or maybe it was really low one of the two they were just off um that year at least initially so yeah like 
the it's it's tough. Everybody's everybody's different, but usually how it goes in negotiation is you walk in there, hey, here's the comparable stuff based on age, health, production, positional value, whatever the franchise tag number would be, negotiate. What's like all that stuff is just so so tough. You basically just probably get a situation where Gino waits till Derek Carr signs and you just use that. And even then, Derek Carr's got however many years of sample size on on Gino, even though Gino had a much better year. It's like it's a very tricky situation, trickier than I realized before I went down to Mobile. That's what I was going to say is it sounds like there are a number of factors sort of like, I mean, obviously playing well-ish this year for Gino is an important one, but it feels like there are a number of factors factoring against Gino in these negotiations that maybe apples to apples we wouldn't have looked at, where it's not just one. Right, it's not just like this year. It's a one-season sample size or something. It's two or three different things that are going to bring that number down. Um, and you mentioned Ryan Tannehill, who's kind of like we've talked about him as almost the only middle class for quarterbacks in the NFL. Is kind of it's like Tannehill, and that's it. Period. Do you feel like we had talked about this and we were like, it is set in stone, hundred percent. There is no way unless they get a deal done beforehand that the Seahawks don't franchise Geno. Do you feel like, given all the conversations you've had, that that's the case? Or is there a possibility that he goes into the offseason, not signed with the Seahawks, and also not on the franchise tag? Man, that, that latter scenario where he's just a, a freebie, then that's that's a scary thought. I was thinking about that this morning, actually, when I was having a phone call with my, my editor, kind of going over doing a franchise tag story next week since the deadline, or the opening window is Tuesday, I think. Like, I don't think there's a scenario where he's just on the open market. That's just way too, that's way too risky. And I think that's probably a situation where Pete having final say matters, like the head coach having final say. Cause that's, I think an understated thing a lot of the times in the NFL is how the, the, let's see, I don't want to use the word agendas, but just what the, whatever the word is for what the GM wants and what the coach wants may not always be the same you know aligned. yeah yeah that just yeah it's not not aligned all because that could be a, a few factors that can be age that can be maybe the coach is new but the gm's been there for a while so there's more pressure on him like a chris ballard situation in indy for example or maybe it's like uh, all right the 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 gm just got there but like the coach has been there for a little bit and he's had a few losing seasons or whatever and he needs to get this right like right now so maybe he wants to keep a couple aging guys who, because they can help him win right now, but maybe not two years down the line. Um, you know, you kind of felt a little bit of that with like um, some of the veterans they tried to get rid of in the past. They tried to trade Earl a year before he walked, tried to trade Sherm like two years before they cut him. Uh, maybe if it was up to some of the front office, they probably would have cut Bobby like a year sooner. Uh, maybe even KJ as well, just because the front office and the and the the head coach don't always have the same thing because they're in, you know, they got different different views you know like for Pete Carroll they'd be like all right let's take a quarterback at five or John let's say John John's like let's take a quarterback at five well all right well can that quarterback play right right now because I'm head coach I want to win right now um and then the head coach has his guys that he likes blah 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 blah. um it's a very understated thing I was re- this is on my mind part because I was reading why the Dolphins lost their pick because I had forgot um and that was a clear example of front office and coach not being aligned which is why they ended up losing losing their pick. So I think the only way you get a scenario where Gino where Gino is under not under contract just hits the market like like Shaquille did and like DJ Reed did and like some like they've had some guys in the past do 
is if John is really like, dude, just trust me, trust me. Ain't nobody else gonna pay that guy what we were just offering him, and he'll he'll see that. But that's such a gamble. Um, you just stand to lose so much, like you lose your quarterback for nothing. Yeah, nothing. I just had a tweet about the Raiders losing Derek Carr like that for nothing. Now I know why that happened, but still, that's crazy though. In a world where Carson Wentz got traded for two thirds, you lose Derek for squat. Man, that's that's tough. So I I don't really see that that scenario. Maybe that changes after I go to the combine here in a couple of weeks. I'll learn a little bit more. That's usually a bit more of a chattier um, setting uh, than the senior bowl to my uh, from what people I've talked to. So we'll see. But right now, no, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't see that. Scenario. It's just too much. It's too much of a gamble at a time where there are, are teams out there whose head coaches are will, will be under pressure to get like a a, a proven product. Because that's what a head coach wants who's on the on the ropes. Right. Like Frank Wright can afford to take a shot on like Bryce Young. But can Ron Rivera, can Dennis Allen, you know, like can Robert Sala, you know, those dudes could probably got to win here pretty soon like fast and get the quarterback thing right or you get the boot um same thing with uh uh Todd Bowles too like those guys probably feel like some pressure to win right away versus this this not pressure that D'Amico Ryans or Frank Reich or or even um Shane and and Indy probably feels like so uh, even in Josh McDaniels too in, in in Las Vegas so I think the Seahawks can't take that gamble and they haven't really been much of a gambling franchise the clowny thing now that I think about it, it wasn't as much of a gamble, but I, I couldn't see that doing them with their quarterback. That's that's tough. Yeah, a very different position. I, I was close to, before you mentioned Bowles, asking whether, you know, now we have the report in the news today that Dave Canales is going there as their offensive coordinator. Is that change the possibility of them as a Geno Smith suitor at all? Or, or do you think, you know, I also saw mentioned today that Drew Locke maybe goes there as somebody who has a chance to compete for the starting job there in a way that he potentially wouldn't hear and, and knows the system. Yeah, I think, I think they should have always been considered uh, a possibility. People keep asking me, well, Mike, who's, where else is Gino going to go? I was like, dude, the whole NFC South. Like, you know, Gino's an upgrade in the entire division, you know? Now, it's funny because the Seahawks lost to the entire NFC South. But, <laughs> yeah. like, he would legitimately be an upgrade on the, the whole uh, division. I don't know if every coach would be interested. Um, and I'm sure having having Dave there would help. Like, Dave Dave was really a big part of just all the passing success that you've seen these guys have. He's played so many different roles. He's been a receiving coach. He's been a quality control coach. And once I learned what those guys do, I was like, oh, man. That's a really important job. Hopefully those guys make a lot of money. Uh, quality they, control. They, they don't. <laughs> they no, I don't. They, they don't. Yeah. When I learned that, I really just kind of learned the nuts and bolts of it. Actually, last year um, when I was making phone calls about uh, Sean Desai uh, when he got hired, I was like, what did you do up there in Chicago? And the answer was everything. And I was like, oh, okay. No wonder people speak so highly of you. You had to do a lot of shit. Um, Wait, can you walk yeah, think, us through? I feel like there are a lot of people, myself included, who have no idea to, what a quality control coach does offensively or defensively. If you could like like Cliff Notes version talk about that, I think that'd be pretty exciting. So one of the things that one of the roles that is really important in that is that you are responsible and this because this can differ from franchise to franchise. But one thing is staying ahead of the team schedule in terms of like scouting your upcoming opponents. So like if the Seahawks have a week four game against the like this week, I think this year was the Lions, right? Like, all right, it's your quality control coaches, guys, to already be scouting the Saints the year before. Or maybe you maybe you got the week six opponent, which I think was the Cardinals this year. Like, oh, yeah, we're week four, but 
it's your job to already be on the Saints, already be on the Lions, already be on the, the Chargers with their Week 7. Like, that's your job. So that when they, these coaches show up Monday or Tuesday or whatever, you got the cut-ups ready. You know, you got um, – so when you watch a team in preparation, usually you watch not just their most recent game, but games against teams who have a similar scheme as you. So this year for the Seahawks, for example, their defense – no, excuse me. They wanted to, they had a similar scheme as the Vikings defensively. So if you're scouting, you want to see how teams attacked the Vikings. It's not apples to apples, but like that's your job. And you think about it, that's that job's huge as shit. Because in the NFL, there ain't that much time in between games in terms of game prep. You got Monday, you rewatch the game, everyone goes and gets in the ice bath, whatever, hyperbaric chamber, all that good stuff. Tuesday, the players are off. By Wednesday is the first time the players get the game plan. Like they walk in 6 a.m. All right, here's early down stuff. Um, we'll do blitz on Thursday. We'll maybe we'll do a little third down every day, you know, and maybe end each day with red zone. But all that stuff is on their desks and everything or whatever, their iPads by six, like 6, 7 a.m. Wednesday morning, usually. And that's your job to get it to the coaches so they can get that right, maybe adjust for some injuries, whatever. And then make sure by Wednesday, everybody's got that shit. And that's huge, particularly on like a bye week or a short week uh, as well. So, yeah, that's, that's they got a million grunt work jobs, too. It's like a, it's a, lot, a lot of busy work. Well, that's one thing that I know Sean was a part of in Chicago and then axing around. That's actually what a lot of quality control guys do. And I'm like, yeah, that's a lot. Like, it's your job to get us ready for the next team. That's huge. Yeah, I think that's the kind of entry level position that then prepares you for those. You don't make a lot of money then, but hopefully you translate into eventually getting the better right. jobs where where you do have that opportunity. Uh to to kind of wrap us up on Gino, I guess the one question here. So so Joel Corey in that piece you referenced talked about some of Gino's quotes and how much they made him cringe as an agent, hearing him even talk about being thankful to the Seahawks for the opportunity because that's not the position you want to take in negotiations. Do you feel like I mean, I, I, I don't know how good of a sense you could have, but that Gino kind of understands where the market might come in or if the market for him isn't what we've been you know talking about, about these quarterbacks that are less accomplished than him. Is that going to be you know something he's going to have a difficult time swallowing, which might make the negotiations more contentious? From what I've gathered is when you have a veteran agent, your veteran agents or agencies are usually really good at gauging that stuff. I've only personally had a couple like, intimate conversations over the years with agents who have been like now nah, mike we're good once my client gets in his ballpark is this it's usually around like this year and then they'll end up being being right um it's it's been like a hundred percent hit rate the, that's why it was very interesting we didn't hear much from Clowney's agent that year i think it was bus cook a veteran guy at the time because it sounds like they went in with a thought and they misread the market entirely um like several millions off it was pretty crazy i haven't seen anything like that um so because uh, gino's with a veteran agency uh veteran agent i imagine he'll have a very good feel for the market which is what really matters i think that stuff that joel mentioned that i put in there i think that is important that's why i threw it in there because gino used the word repay after that niners game and i was like of all the words that's like the worst <laughs> yeah. one. that's like quite literally the worst that's almost worse than discount like if he just said repay and discount in the same press conference, like Gino's agent might have stormed in there and like, dude, what, <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? Uh, so I think that stuff does does matter, and it just makes it harder to bluff. Um, 
like if uh, Matt Thomas, who's the Seahawks negotiator, and John Snyder want to be like, hey man, look, we'll go, we'll go do this Drew Lock thing, you know, like as a a ploy to his agent to like say hey, we don't need your guy, you're, you're asking for too much. You can just call bullshit a lot easier. <laughs> if John's gone on seven interviews on the radio and be like, nah, we love you, you know, we want him back, <laughs> yada yada yada. But I do think his agent will have a good feel. Um, they have their different ways of going about that. Senior Bowl is one of them. Um, combine is one of them. And yeah, like I said, a lot of these guys have just been doing this for a while. Um, they got other homies that are agents. They're cool with other GMs. Uh, they talk to position coaches, yada, yada, other free agents. Like, there's a lot of just moving and shaking that goes around. Where So if you got a veteran person, they can come in and like, look, be honest with you. Here's our market. Here's what I'm thinking. And we'll figure this out. You usually don't have to hit the market, like actually physically hit it on March 15th or whatever to really like, oh, damn, the only one to give us four million a year out here, huh? Like, usually you can you can kind of guesstimate where things are going. Maybe a wild card year was like the COVID year where everybody had to cut everybody because the, the, the cap shrunk. Or you get like a situation where a bunch of GMs are new. So you don't really know, like, you know, like last year, like, few teams had new like four or five teams might have new GMs first time GMs Raiders Vikings couple of teams so you know, I think I think his people will have a good feel for what the market will be um it's tough to say what it could be anywhere from like 34 to like 25 that's tough uh, but yeah I, I think they'll have a they'll have a good feel for it and that'll make the negotiation a little easier um and give them the levers that they need all that good stuff Seattle fun fact, Gino's agent, Shafi Fields, was Swin Cash's significant other when she was first traded to the Storm. So I recognize that name right away. Wow, that is a fun fact. And he's got he's had some other Seahawks clients too. I, I can't, he might have had a killer Witherspoon. Did he have like Bruce? He's had some other guys. I have his, I, I, I save all the agents' names under who their clients are. So like, uh, he's he's had a bunch in the past. I don't always update it so that can get awkward. Um, when I'm texting someone like, hey, just here checking in on so-and-so. It's like, oh, man, he fired me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I have him as Bruce's agent, Gino's agent, Rondell Moore. I don't know why I have that. Uh, and Akella Witherspoon. Yeah, so they've dealt with him in the past. I don't know why I have yeah. Rondell Moore in there. But, yeah, so they, and whoever else. He, he's been around for a little bit, so he could have repped a bunch of other guys. But, yeah, he's he's been on the block a little bit. He'll He'll know – how realistic it is that his client will go out there and get whatever the PFF number was. Sure. I, I guess looking at the draft a little bit, not necessarily moving on from Gino, but knowing where the Seahawks ended up in the draft, obviously it's massive win or whatever to have the fifth pick in the draft. We were looking at the top three pick for most of the season. And if the Seahawks, the Broncos don't win that game week 18, the Seahawks end up with one of the top three picks in the draft. Do you think that changes anything with regards to the Gino conversations? If it was Bryce Young or CJ Stroud, or almost certainly one of them is going to be out there, or is this is the draft not really a factor in this? Is this more about Geno than anything else? No, I think actually it is, and that was something I brought up with Joel too. I think it's a leverage thing um, because, and Joel brought this. He reminded me of this. I knew this already. That the Seahawks the way they structure their deals is they usually have your 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 signing bonus is usually guaranteed, obviously. And then your base salary usually in your first year is usually guaranteed. And then the other stuff guarantees later. It's basic structure of Seahawk deals. Condre's deals like that. I think his base salary like just becomes guaranteed. Either just did or is just about to. DK's deals like that. 
Um, Russ's deals were like that. Bobby's deal is like that. So their big deals have a pretty basic structure that they follow. That's important because let's say in theory, yeah, I give Gino a bunch of money. It's three years, 90 million. Cool. That sounds great. Okay. But only your signing bonus is guaranteed and your first year salary, which we're going to make 2 million or whatever, just, you know, to keep your, your cap hit low. All right. So we're giving you whatever your cap hits like 17 million this year, but then none of your other money doesn't guarantee until the fifth day of the, you know, waiver period or whatever. All right. Well, in that case, we can still take Will Levis. And then if you fall off a cliff, sir, we already have your replacement. We Derek Carr you, you know, around Valentine's day and can move on. And that's a realistic scenario. I, I would say at least in a negotiation, I would make it sound realistic as hell. Um, so I do think that's that's something to keep in mind. And I think it keeps a quarterback in play at five, even if you even if you were given a big deal. Like I said, it could be realistic. You could get like a three or ninety million dollar deal. But as Derek Carr's deal just showed us, it's fluff money. And like, where's the guarantees? Every agent I talked to around this time of year, like, yeah, that's cool. That average annual value stuff. That's for recruiting. That's how we can say yeah. we got insert receiver here the highest receiver deal ever cool it's marketing yeah yeah it's marketing yep and that and it works it's good for them everyone really knows though all right where's the guarantees at because as soon as there's no guarantees your clients susceptible to trade or cut whoever the hell um you are you can be moved up so yeah i think a quarterback i don't think to take quarterback at five either way but one remains in play like i can't i can't knock it um like i'm i have a mock draft due on monday Actually, it's due Friday, and I'm probably I'm not gonna remove any quarterbacks from the possibility at five. Like I'm a, I'm gonna leave them there. I don't know who I'll pick yet, but like I have to keep it open. And I imagine that the Seahawks would kind of use that too. Like, hey man, we can just take a guy, you know, we can tag you, take a guy, you know, uh, see you next see you next spring or whatever. Now that's probably not realistic, but yeah, I think that's in play for sure. At first, when I came into the offseason, I thought, well, Gino played way too well for them to take a quarterback at five. And then I remembered how much John loves quarterbacks. And then I started asking people about Anthony Richardson. And I was like, oh, John would take that guy. <laughs> that guy's really good. No one told me specifically John would take that guy. That's just kind of me projecting. I'm like, man, see that dude with that big-ass arm, really good in the pocket and can run? And he's not even a little guy. He's like 6'4". Oh, yeah. that's. You feel like Richardson's the one? Like, obviously, knowing that Seahawks are not going to be in Bryce Young, CJ Stroud territory, do you feel like Anthony Richardson is the quarterback the Seahawks are most likely to fall in love with in this draft? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Most likely to fall in love with. I don't know if they'd take him, but he's. I think he's the easiest to fall in love with other than maybe Bryce. Um, like, just because the, the upside looks so crazy – and I know upside's like the favorite buzzword of everyone during draft time, but you can really see the difference with some of these dudes. Like I could have told you in 2021 that the Mac Jones upside ain't that high. You know, like I told you he'd probably be fine, you know, but I wouldn't have told you, nah, man, that upside ain't that crazy. I'd have been like the Justin Fields dude though. That upside, I don't know if he'll ever get there, but if he get there, it's going to look, it's going to look serious. Um, and you could just see it with, with, uh, with Anthony too. I don't like making Josh Allen comps, but I will make a Josh Allen comp. Uh, that just arm strength, he's so big. I think he's like 230 pounds. And guys just bounce out. Like there are linebackers that are 230. I think Cody Barton's like 233 or something like that. At least 
listed around there, 237 maybe. Like, it's it's just amazing how big that dude is and how strong he is. And then you look at the Super Bowl and see Jalen Hurts run that two-point conversion and that specific run, you just see like, oh, I could see Anthony Richardson doing that at that level. Because like, guys do evolve as passers. You know, I know a lot of people who watch more Florida football than me are probably like, Mike, nah, I trust it. And for every good play you're seeing, he's throwing it to their team three plays later. And I'm like, I feel you, you're right. But guys can grow. I mean, there was a, that third and 14, uh, Jalen Hurst threw to Dallas Goddard in the Super Bowl against the, the cover two. That's over LeJarrius Sneed's arm. That's not a throw Jalen was making coming out of college. Yeah. I mean, Josh Allen didn't have a very good senior year. No, yeah. and That was, that was generous to Josh Allen. <laughs> he didn't have a first two good years. First uh, two years in the league, they were, they were, he was awful. But like, I think if there's a guy to fall in love with, and knowing that the Seahawks probably can't get Bryce or CJ, CJ Stroud, that is, yeah, I think Anthony Richardson would be the guy. He feels whatever logic made them love Mahomes and Josh Allen, I think would persuade, like you follow similar logic, guy who can make plays with his legs and then just uncork a rope. It's like what John was telling us that Drew Locke is, um, but like, <laughs> no, he's like, actually, actually that with a stronger arm too. I've just imagined a scenario where the Seahawks trade back from five of a few spots and then take whatever they get in that trade and use it to move up from 20 to get Richardson and end up with the, you know, a, a second tier, maybe defensive player and Richardson out of the first round. Is that, that makes sense to you? Man, I'm struggling with my mock draft right now, actually. Like, this will be interesting. You guys will finally see it when it comes out, but I'm really struggling with what to do after trading back. Because I really, I, I got to watch these guys a little bit more, but I'm really not a big fan of a lot of the rushers in the top 10 that aren't Jalen Carter and Will Anderson. Yeah. Like, I feel like they could get in a scenario like they were in 2019, where it's like, oh, shit, we traded Frank, so we have to take an edge rusher. Even if the edge rusher, even if the guy we're about to take is probably not the highest guy on our board, he's the highest guy at the position we need. Um, and that can backfire um, on you, um, which, it, which it did. Um, sometimes you just got to take the best guy and worry about where he fits later. Uh, I think, I don't know how these picks have turned out, but I think the Packers last year is like a good example. They traded Devontae, but I think their first two picks were defense, right? Cause it was probably just the highest graded guys on their board, uh, at the time, you know, the chiefs didn't just go draft a receiver right after trading, uh, Tyreek. Meanwhile, the Titans was like, oh shit, we traded AJ. Let's take a guy. And then Traylon Burks is like not a guy you know so that can burn you where you feel like you gotta take a thing early just because that's like your biggest your most urgent need and i feel like after you trade back from five even if you go to seven or nine man i get to i, I i've landed on that that kid from alabama the db twice i'm like man i like that dude i would take him and have him play every spot in the secondary if um if i could so yeah no i get it gets tricky after after that, I don't think it's like a no-brainer just trade back from five and then like take uh, Wilson from Texas Tech. Uh, like they do get in a place where if you're at pick anywhere from like nine to twelve, you might just have to. As long as it's not offensive tackle, man, you just take the best guy on the board, maybe. I mean, that's sort of how I feel about wide receiver in the first round of this year's draft, especially because the other thing that I would I would argue there is 
Like, look, wide receiver might not look like a need other than a third, you know, guy in that position, a slot guy in that position right now. But, you know, Tyler Lockett is the edge that he is. And you start projecting a couple of years down the road that could rather quickly become a need. And it would be great to have that player already in the system. Yeah, I've been kind of talking myself into that, too. If they like if John got really sick with it and shit it all the way back into the teens, end up taking that kid from Notre Dame, the tight end, because like same thing, tight end's not like a super need, but like impact players are a need it doesn't really as long like i said as long as it's not offensive tackle because then you're you're the guy doesn't even have a chance to start right you know it's like we yeah. got a you got you got charles that that would just be dumb but pretty much everything else <laughs> you can take and say yeah man if this guy is an impact player you know we, we take him you know there's been a few teams who have done that it just kind of pans out you just take take a good football player that high particularly at the in the in the top 10, if that's, I had, I had a mock where I landed on um, the corner from Illinois. Like, man, if you're picking at nine and, the, and Witherspoon's the best dude on the board and he's a game changer in your eyes, take him. Yeah. Take him. I don't care that you got Michael Jackson and Trey Brown and um, whoever else over there uh, opposite Tariq. If you just got a guy, take a guy. Um, and I think that's kind of where they, they, they messed up in previous drafts, among other things. But yeah, no, there, it could get real interesting. With the same like it's the same thing with receiver if like you're there at 20 and dude from ohio state is there that I, is i i would be so excited if they drafted jackson smith Nieba. i love him i love it. I, the first time i watched him was the rose bowl which probably makes me a lot higher on him than most people yeah the, the rose the rose bowl against utah like a year and whatever two years ago now i was like this dude looks like tyler lockett and uh, he had some catches in there. And I, I think I tweeted one. I was like, this is the same catch I've seen. Like the body control, <laughs> spatial awareness. And then I researched him and he's like the best high school football player from Texas ever. Yeah. Um, so it makes sense why he was so good. But yeah, like if he's there, it, you can never have too many good pass catches, man. Look at what the, the Eagles have. Look at what, you know, Burrow has. Look at what the Chiefs have. Look at what look at what the, the Bills wish they had, you know, by the conference or whatever championship whatever round they lost so yeah no i think they're gonna get to a point everything after like pick five is they're in like best player that's not offensive tackle category for me it's kind of interesting because i we talk about team needs right where it's like like you're mentioning offensive tackle like the seahawks have have a a fairly good roster i feel like okay young roster in a lot of places right there aren't any super 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 glaring needs in a lot of places, but they kind of need everything. But the one thing I'd say is like the the super glaring needs they have are not at the high value position. Bingo, that's what it is. Interior offensive line and interior defensive lines. You don't necessarily need to use the fifth and twentieth picks on those. Like even if you're if you're reaching a little bit for a guy, it's in the second round. Pass rush is one of the biggest needs and an important position. Yeah, I think that's the best marriage of need and importance. Correct. That's where we kind of end up is right. Like you look at the needs and you look at the value and you're like pass rush wide receiver. Then that's kind of the two places. I, I think it's a little bit hard to imagine Pete drafting a player in the secondary in the first couple of rounds, just mm-hmm. because he's been so resistant to doing it. Uh, maybe not the couple of rounds in the first round. Pete has been really resistant to drafting a player in the secondary. Post use use multiple first round picks on a guy in the secondary. You'll recall <laughs> that's different. Although I do think they probably would have taken um, Derwin if he if he'd have fell. I think Derwin went like the pick before Close. their original pick, and then they traded. They immediately traded back. 
and then ended up taking Rashad, I want to say, which is crazy because then I believe, if I'm remembering all of this right, the pick they traded out of became Jair Alexander, um, which would have obviously been worth. Yeah, I think that's how it went. I think Derwin went 17th to the Chargers. The Seahawks had 18, traded 18 to the Packers for, I think, 27 to take Rashad. I think that's how that went. Um, I also think if they were picking that high in 2016, they probably would have taken Jalen Ramsey. I could see Pete uh, having done that uh, as well. Uh, I could also see Pete having liked Kyle Hamilton, too, um, if if they had a shot to take him. He's a guy I would have loved for them to take last year. He came on really strong, very similar to the branch dude. I feel like we're just like, yeah, I can play him deep, but honestly, I can just stick him in the box and just just branch from um, from Alabama. Yeah, you're, you're right, uh, Kevin. They don't really... John could get, I got real maniacal in one of those uh, mock draft simulators I was trying the other day, actually earlier today, and I got all the way back to like 15 before I made a pick, but then I had like a million third round picks and stuff and second round picks, and I was like, yeah, well now I can fill out my guys because I need like inside linebackers and nose tackles and shit. I don't need to take a nose tackle with 11, you know, even if I like the kid from Baylor, I can just wait, you know, and take him at... 31 or whatever you know like that's kind of the space that they're in they don't they're picking where you get premium players but they don't need a ton of premium players i mean you always need a ton of premium players but yeah my i I would say two things number one i feel like defensive end at least is solid enough with enchenomoso and you know the production that you did get at times from boye mafe and daryl taylor coming on in the second half of the season they're like it's not like if they don't draft uh pass rusher and edge rusher in the first two rounds i'll feel like you know they can't go into the season that way that's right. how i like i would still love for them to take one but i don't There's feel no like it's that they level don't anymore. draft a pass rusher in the first two rounds i'm sorry but like they're going to draft a pass rusher in the first two rounds there's no chance that they do not God, they, pro- they probably they probably will the tricky part is it's like for me when i'm watching some of these guys i'm not really in love with the guys I see, I see just a, a, like an obvious issue that like, yeah, every, every guy in the first round is like first round talent, quote unquote, but I just see like an obvious issue. Like, all right, how quickly is Tyree Wilson going to be a dropper? Um, you know, like some of these guys who are like 270, 280, um, who would be better fit as like a, like a 4-3 DN kind of true thing, not like a stand-up backer, which I think Will Anderson would probably do. Like that's just a different animal dropping in, in the pros versus in college. And there's, I feel that way about a few of those guys. Um, even the d- other dude from Clemson feel that way about him. Um, haven't looked too Miles much. Murphy, who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, haven't looked too much into the kid from, I think it's Iowa. He's got like three names like me. Um, but like, I think Luke something. It's like Luke. Can't remember. But like all these guys, I'm like, man, if this feels like a better pick in the teens than it does at like five. You know, like, it, and, and maybe it doesn't matter too much if the guy's a good player, but the expectations are just so much different there. And while we want to pretend that that doesn't matter, that does. Like, people would not have had all that vitriol for Rashad Penny getting hurt so much if he was a fifth-round pick. Sure. Because you know, it was a first-round pick, expectations are higher. Same thing with LJ Collier, too, first-round pick. So, yeah, I, I'm struggling right now with the with the mock. And I wonder if the Seahawks are kind of in that same space. Like, man, after, like, pick six – we don't really need to pick till like 17, you know, they, because the last thing you want to do is just reach for a guy. And then he's like, he's sandwiched in between a bunch of all pros. And you got the one guy in the top 14, who like sucks or something like that. It's a, it was a, an obviously a phenomenal trade, but it's almost like a parting gift from Russ to give the Seahawks the fifth pick in the draft and a four player draft. And it yeah. is, 
it really feels like the I think the first thing that the Seahawks are hoping for is somebody gets excited about Will Levis or somebody else. And three quarterbacks go in those first three picks and they end up with the Jalen Carter. I think Will Anderson is going before them, but like they end up with a Jalen Carter. And if that happens, the Seahawks put the pick in immediately. Like that is that is the dude who I could see the Seahawks being so excited about and have having wanted for the entire season and just been like, this is our guy. This is who we want to get. This is where we want to get to. He's interior. You could stop the run. You could pass rush. It's everything that we've been looking for. And aside from that happening, all of a sudden trading down becomes so obviously the best possibility in this draft. I think they were probably going to do that last year, uh, trading, trading back. I think if the, if the, who was before them, the Falcons, I think the Falcons took Drake London right before they took, they took Carl, uh, Charles Cross. If the Falcons would have took Charles, I bet you they would have traded back because remember we, you know, the thought was they needed tackles. They probably, it, I felt very similar last year too. I was like, man, I don't really feel good about this Trevor Penning dude at nine. Like I would feel a lot better with, about him at like twenty, which like is kind of around where he went. I think like that to the Saints. So yeah, nineteen. I, nineteen. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel much better about that. Um, and even then, I don't think he. I think he got hurt, and I don't know how that's going for the Saints. But like, I I feel like the Seahawks had a similar thought. Like, yeah, if 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 certain dudes don't fall to us, like Stingley, Sauce, uh, Icky, Charles. Like, I feel like they were probably like, we can just go back. Um, and I, I the tricky part is, is going from nine to whatever feels like, all right, cool. Everyone in this range is probably about the same caliber of player. There's certain spots that you take a guy at five or something like that, man, he needs to be a dude. Yeah. Like, right away, you can't just take a center at five. <laughs> uh, you know, even if he's like a really good player, like, that'd just be hard to justify. I mean, it's hard to justify a guard. Like, he basically needs to be Quentin Nelson like from the get-go to kind of justify some of those picks. So, yeah, I, I'm actually really – I can't wait to talk to uh, or hear John on this radio show he's going to do on 710 every Thursday, for, for God knows for what reason. Um, but <laughs> I can't wait to hear him every week and talk to him at the Combine because a lot – I'm going to try to squeeze the right answers out of him because there's a lot of different ways they could go. I do think the worst-case scenario you could find yourself in is just taking the highest guy to position of need – when you know like five, six other guys are probably just better players. Like, I think that's that's a dangerous scenario. You get into like the Titans or something like that. Like, it's like, oh, we just took Traylon Burks because we needed a receiver. It's like, well, if you thought, you know, Trey Smith or whatever, whoever, uh, no, Tyler Smith, the guy that the Cowboys took, um, if you thought he was better, then take him instead, man. You'll find a place for offensive linemen. You know? So that's a tough spot to be in for a lot of teams. I feel like I want to sp- speak up on Traylon Burks's behalf. I know, we, he's I a little better Traylon in the Burks. second half of the season. I love him. Yeah, but he yeah. got hurt too. Yeah, <laughs> like I know he's not, like I, so. I have uh, oh my home uh, Ben Arthur. You guys know uh, Ben. He uh, used to cover the Seahawks for the PI. Covers it. For, he covered the uh, Titans for Tennessee, and now he's at Fox Sports covering the AFC South. I, t- I was in, I'm in a group chat with him. I was like, "Yo, trading AJ is fine." Like cause it was a big deal over there in Nashville. Obviously, it's like they're good. Take the kid from Georgia, and you'll be fine. Uh, I didn't remember his name at the time. I was like, just take the kid from Georgia. I had seen some highlights where he just like picked up a dude and threw him into the crowd. I was like, yeah, take that dude from Georgia. You'd be I was George Pickens. Um, so I was never really high on Burks from the get go because I was like, dang, I know they picked the wrong guy. Like, I know this guy from Georgia is going to be better. And he was. And I do think he'll be like long term, too. Like, I think Pickens is like a stud. Whereas I think Burks will be like a solid 
guy who like maxes out like wide receiver two, which is fine, but you traded away wide receiver one. Uh, so yeah, that's rough. Yeah, it's especially worse to overdraft to fill a need when you've also traded away AJ Brown, which is the, the good news is the Seahawks are not going to be in a situation like that. Uh, I think we should talk about the exercise that we did with Ben at the end of the season and go back to this with you, which is the percentage chances of returning to this to the Seahawks this offseason with some of their key free agents. I, I don't know if we have anybody on the list. I think they are all free agents as opposed to last year there was Bobby Wagner when there was the potential of cutting him. So that starts out with Geno Smith. All right. What did Ben say? What percentage did he have? Do you want to go through ours first? Yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like that's, is this no, Price is Right style? I don't need him. I don't need him. I'm, I'm really high on the Geno coming back. I, I, I put that at like 90, 95. Like I, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm high on him being on the team in 2023. Like, like I, I say, like 95. I'm, I'm, I feel really good about Gino. He's the one I feel the best about, as my future answers will represent. You're the highest of us on Gino. I was previously the highest at 85. Ben and Tristan were both at 80. percent I think I'm probably higher now after the last month or so. I mean, that was like the day after the season ended, yes. and it does feel like the chatter. Like if all of a sudden a Gino deal got announced at some point in the next month, I wouldn't be shocked by it. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm. I've, I felt good about it from the beginning. I just feel like Gino. I knew Gino felt like the whole repay thing. I didn't think he'd say that. <laughs> But I also think it's really it's it's really significant when the the head coach has final say, and I think that 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 matters a ton. Um, it doesn't always result in Pete keeping his guys. Like he lost Bobby, for example. Pete wanted to keep Bobby. He wanted to keep Russ too. Lost them both. Same off season. Um, but and Famously. you could yeah you could see same, same day even. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a busy week. Uh, but you, I could see a scenario where, like, dude, where, where Pete like gets an update, like John walks to his office, like, "All right, man, we're on day four with this stuff," and it's like, "All right, get him back. I don't care what it takes." Get do you think him. Pete wanted to keep Russ? Wait, that is like, do you think that a hundred percent came from John, or largely came from John and possibly Jody? And Pete was like, "Let's run it back with Russ." Uh, well, I mean, Pete said on the, in the press conference too. The first day, he was like, "Yeah, he he lobbied to Russ to for Russ to stay," um, and Russ was like, "I'm out of here." Um, so, and uh, I believe their version of that uh, is, yeah. but I also believe Russ saying they did try to trade me, which they did uh, multiple yeah. times. So, uh, but I don't think Pete was ever on the side of like we can't win with Russell. Um, that's where like I can see why Pete didn't take much of a victory lap this year, particularly when Russ was playing bad and Gino played well, because A, he didn't expect Gino to play that well, and B, he didn't expect Russ to play bad. Like, he was probably like, wrong on both fronts, <laughs> uh, to, to be honest. He didn't think Russ would just be awful, you know, like get to a point where he's not even getting into the Pro Bowl as a alternate, alternate, <laughs> alternate over Tyler Huntley. Right? Like, there's no way Pete thought that. I guarantee you he didn't, he didn't think that, you know. He wanted him to give, give it another shot. Um, did the front office agree? Probably not. I uh, traded him a while ago. Probably if it was <laughs> if it was if it was up to them. But yeah, I think that as it goes to the thing about head coaches in front office, not always seeing this. It goes same for position coaches in front office too. You get position coaches be like, "Look, man, I am playing this thirty-four year old safety because he's he's fucking taking away the seams in the post." Where it's like, "Dude, we just drafted this second round dude from Alabama. Play him." It's like, "Well, no, <laughs> he needs to wait." You know, this is. 
this is, this is how it goes, and that that can get a lot of friction. You get a lot, see a lot of coaches getting canned uh, over stuff like that, which is why when you ask Pete and John about their relationship, one thing Pete always talks about is like I was willing to play play young guys early in our relationship, and that that helped because fucking scout a guy for six months and draft him. You don't want to see him playing special teams for three years with like the Cody Cody Barton. Hey, those guys, John's guys, don't want to see that. I want to see Cody riding the pine, the 88th pick. For three years, no, you want to see him play. So yeah, that that will probably factor in with Gino a little bit too, especially with how much Gino or Pete really wants Gino back. Uh, if we do find the person who did predict Tyler Huntley was going to make the Pro Bowl this year, <laughs> I, I want to go to Vegas with that, <laughs> and not just for the Pro Bowl. Uh, next up, the other quarterback who's a free agent, Drew Locke. Oh, I'm real low on this one. Uh, the percentage of chances, I actually think. Locke will probably be a fine player at some point. Uh, I'm like 10. Like 10 wow. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, because well, because you think about it, I think Gino will be back. So, and I think if Gino's back, there's it's like 0% chance Drew's back. Drew was actually, Locker clean out this year sucked because no one was really in there. It was terrible timing. But Drew is one of the few guys I did talk to um, in there. I was like, yo, you want to, you know, what you thinking about free agencies? Like, you know, I'm going to see what happens. You know, I, I, I want to start in this league. He was really inspired by, like, Geno's year for a guy like Drew. It's like, shit, man, my time is going to come. You know, yeah, I just got to wait, you know, a little bit longer than than I thought, uh, which could be a tough reality for quarterbacks. If you're an NFL quarterback, chances are you've been, like, a starter your whole life, um, at least best if you were a high pick like Drew. So he was like, yeah, I'm inspired by that. I feel like his time's coming. I was like, well, if you – you want to start here? He's like, well, you know, I don't want to start wherever, you know, with like a smirk, like, yeah, I'm not doing the whole come back and compete with this guy again. Yeah. Thing. Um, so I think if Gino's here, Drew just will politely be like, yo, I want to go somewhere where I can compete for a starting job, which makes sense. Most of these guys do themselves as starters. It is not till they hit like a certain point where they're like, ah, shit, damn it. I'm about to just be clipboard Jesus here for a little bit. Uh, that takes a while to get there. So I don't oh, yeah. think Drew's there yet. Yeah. No, he's definitely still there. Kind of an interesting one where he did. You agreed with that, even though you gave him a 90% chance of return. No, I, I'm like, I'm, a, I'm, I'm impressed at how off we are. This is why Mike Sean's going to beat us again. That, <laughs> those percentages right there. But Drew Locke not taking a single snap all year. Right, like as as a backup quarterback, there have to be almost no teams across the league where the backup didn't take a single snap all season yeah i don't think so i think yeah gino played 100 percent. he might have been the only quarterback to play 100 percent. i'm pretty sure i think there were like 19 guys who played 100 percent. unfortunately charles cross was not one of them it was i was weird to fit, look that up he missed like two random ass kneel downs <laughs> i don't i don't know why they were against like arizona i think yeah that is that is pretty weird but you look at it you do need a guy and this is something I learned too in doing some reporting, actually talking to Dave Canales a lot this year about what exactly does the backup do? Um, Cause I was trying to learn what Gino did when he was the backup. And in that, I just got a bunch of notes that I never use about what the backup does. And there is a lot of value in having a guy who's been around a little bit. Like we, a lot of times we assign like a rookie to just come in and learn quote unquote learn behind, but like your jobs, if you're the number two guy, your job's not just to learn. Like, very similar to being a quality control coach. Like you're helping us get ready for the opponent. That matters. We really don't care. Not we don't care, but you developing is secondary. You know, like if you're Jordan Love and the Packers are playing the Bears, 
uh, like we don't really your development comes second to you like running the Bears passing concepts Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. So we're prepared on defense. That's your primary job. You'll get better in the process. But like that's not your primary function to us. Um, and it helps to have a veteran there who's maybe played in the Bears scheme before for a previous coach. He knows the concepts. He knows what they're called. He knows how to run them or whatever. He's played against that coordinator we're facing before or whatever the hell. There's just so much value in a guy who's who's got knowledge, who, who wasn't just like playing in the SEC 12 months prior. So like Drew will have some value there for sure um i think probably have it in tampa bay like i i would i would if you ask me what percent chances he goes there i'd probably say like 60. like if i was drew i would go there it's a chance to compete he knows dave um who knows dave could pluck another guy from the staff um to go with him uh over there i don't know how tampa staff looks so yeah i th- i think drew makes sense there versus staying in seattle running it back behind gino again good stuff all right next up rashad penny Man, I don't feel good about that one. I do think he's he's most he'll be most coveted by Seattle, um, still because they'll know his injury history and stuff, and that like his agent can like submit stuff to them like during the physical after they've already agreed. But like you're gonna want to know before you sign that guy. <sighs> Let's see. I'll probably just, uh, he could be bad. I'd say like fifty, fifty fifty on that. I'm like fifty percent. Still the lowest of the group of us on that one. Yeah. I was at I was at ninety five on that one. Ninety five. Uh, wow. Yeah. Ooh. Austin Blythe. Oh. I would say, I would say about fifty percent as well. Um, Austin's another guy I was able to talk to during locker cleanout, and I remember him saying after he got beat out by a, not beat out really, but beat out by a Creed Humphrey. In Kansas City, I forget what the surgery was that he had, like hernia thing maybe, um, or I don't know if it was surgery. He had an injury, but he was saying that after that year, he was like, "Man, I'm about to just retire." I think he got some key, got kids. He's just like, Man, "I've been in the league for a little bit. I got some bread. I'm about to retire." Um, and then he ends up signing with the Seahawks because of he's worked with Andy Dickerson and, and Shane Waldron. Like, and I was asking him again, like, how are you feeling this time? He's like, man, I'm not tripping. Like, if I, but it's like, if I don't play for the Seahawks next year, I'm retiring. Like, he said that flat out. Um, so that basically just comes down to, well, A, then there goes his leverage. Uh, <laughs> Seahawks can offer him <laughs> whatever the hell they want. It's like, well, dude, you're, if you're just not, we're bidding against your couch, that's, <laughs> that's it. You know, we're bidding against your, your time with your kids. Okay, here's the vet minimum. Um, maybe the, bump it up a little bit more but yeah so i think if that's your mindset you have no leverage and i but i do think the reason i'm probably put that 50 percent is because if you notice the seahawks with the exception of maybe a couple positions last year they usually go into the draft with a starter at every spot mm-hmm. for the most part like last year a left tackle and that was a little that was a little tricky they really didn't, yeah. didn't have that. Yeah. even right tackle well, I could see if they thought, okay, Jake Curran can do it, you know. But, yeah, you're right. Right tackle as well was like, eh, that's different. But usually they go into the draft with a guy. Because you, especially as some of these positions where you're not picking high, it's like, well, we can't just count on getting Cam Jurgens in the third round. Like, that's tough. We need at least a body in there, you know. Um, so, especially, I mean, they start off-season workouts before the draft, you know, so they need they need some bodies. So yeah, I, I could see them signing Blythe 
to something um, that they can get out of. They throw them a little signing bonus, you know, and say, hey, we love you, man. But it's something where if they draft John Michael Schmitz, kid from Minnesota, and he's baller and like, you know, in training camp, they're like, hey, look, Austin, we're probably just going to probably cut you. Uh, it's like, okay, cool, man. I'm going to retire. I love you. You know, I could I could see a situation like that where they they sign him, but then it's not guaranteed. It's kind of like a DJ Fluker esque thing. Remember, they didn't cut him till after they drafted Damian Lewis that year. I could see something kind of kind of similar there. All right, next up, Puna Ford. Another guy I talked to. This is good. I you know what? No, you know what? Locker cleanout didn't suck. I talked to a lot of the UFAs. <laughs> Think about it. I, I, did, I did my job that day. Um, I would put this one. I put this one a little lower, probably like 40, because I do think besides Gino, he's probably the 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 guy that other teams would want most. Mm-hmm. I think Puna's only like 27, um, and he didn't have a great statistical year last year, but anyone who put any D-line coach who throws on the tape when they're lobbying for him to the gym would be like, well, he played out of position. Look at him right here, two gapping and stuff. That's just not his bag. Um, I see why the Seahawks were doing it like that, but we won't play him, you know, like like that. Um, so here, let's let's give him a shot. Um, I'd be curious to see what happens if they get in a bidding war um, with another team for Puna, because the Seahawks, to my knowledge, haven't really won a lot of those. Granted, I don't have a big sample size on, on that, but like I, they were in it to the end on like Shaquille and lost out on him. They were in it with DJ Reed at least early. Um, I don't really remember them winning a lot of, a lot of bidding wars. Whereas I, I see, I could see a lot of teams being like, "Yo, we could use this Puna Ford kid, like young dude, give him like two year deal, something like that." Um, so yeah, I could, I could see it. I could see other teams wanting him, which makes it hard to just like guarantee that he's back. Ben was also at forty percent. He was the lowest of us. Uh, you two are on the same page there. Yeah. All right, the the last one we have for you is Cody Barton. This uh, is tough too. That is a tough one. I think it, I don't even think it's like, it's like the opposite, not even the opposite of the Puna thing, but just not the same. But I'll probably put it at the same percentage, like 40. Actually, I might go lower. Hold on. I, you know, 40 is fine. Just because I think that they are in a tricky spot there with Jordan having just blown his knee out. So then it's like, well, if we don't resign him, like I said, they like to have a body there, a healthy body. You could, in theory, be going into, you know, week three of your preseason. Like, all right, we have two dudes who have never called our plays in a regular season game before, you know, two new linebackers. That's a that's asking a lot unless you go sign two veterans. Um, but I do think there's a world where they just sign, like, Dude from the 49ers, Al, number 51, who wears the brace. It's like Al Shair, Al G's. Yeah. 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 Like the, you sign him because the Seahawks love plucking dudes from the division. Um, in free agency, is something they've done pretty consistently, actually. In similar scheme. Yeah. Yeah. Similar scheme. Guys who, it's just when they've, like, they, they, they just like getting guys that they've seen up close multiple times, watch on film a lot. You know, go get a guy like Gerald Everett, Austin Blythe, even DJ Reed. Um, Akello, they, they do like getting guys from the from the division. So uh, I would say there's a world where you sign a guy like that. You say, all right, we got John Radigan, we got Tanner Muse. You bring back uh, Chief 
uh, Alexander Johnson plan on drafting a dude, go get Dayon Henley from Wazoo. Um, and then that holds you down until Jordan's knee gets right, you know, and then at least you still have a vet in there. Uh, and it's not like Jordan died, like he's still in the building. So that, that helps too. Um, so that way you kind of like maybe quote unquote upgrade with a vet. You got a, a young buck in there, but you still have a couple guys who know your system and guys like Tanner, uh, who at least does have a start under his belt. And, and you got Radigan who they like to and chief because of the cool nickname. So yeah, I could easily see where it's like, yeah, no, this is not, this is not working. The other part that makes the Cody one tricky, I think, and this is a scenario we haven't really seen very often, is we haven't seen a t- the Seahawks re- start a guy and then bring him back and then like have him come off the bench. Yeah. Like usually if you're brought back, I mean, it's all right, you're a starter, uh, but I don't think they can, you can't guarantee that to Cody. You'd, you'd have to be like, dude, you got, we need you to compete uh, for this. You came on strong in the last, you know, part of the year, but we need you to, we, yeah, you're, you're, we're not handing you a job. Now they don't have all their free agents jobs either. They'll tell those guys they got to compete too, but like, I, it's a very weird situation to like have Cody come off the bench, uh, start him, then bring him back and like, all right, compete for your job again, or come off the bench again. That's, that's tough. That's why I don't really see that one happening. For the record, Aziz Alshire is in fact an unrestricted free agent. So, oh yeah, could, yeah. could be the could be that pickup. Uh, so the last one that we did was Jason Myers, where <laughs> Ben was at eighty percent, Tristan was at sixty percent, I was at seventy percent. Literally days later, the Jason Myers extension <laughs> was announced. So I think we're all going to lose some points on that one. Yeah, some the the other guys that like are interesting is Quentin and Shelby, um, right. Yeah, possible casualties. Yeah, particularly and and Gabe, Gabe too. I think with Shelby, it's like nine million you say or something like that. Gabe like six, Quentin like four, which isn't a ton, but I've we've seen them do moves like that. The the probably the best free agent they have is that's not uh, that's not Gino is Ryan Neal, you know, restricted guy. Like I could see them even giving him an extension. You know, like hey, here's two years whatever well let's, let's avoid even the restricted free agent thing very similar to what they did to puna uh, a few years ago when puna was restricted free agent they said here man here's here's a two-year deal we love you you know come come stick around that screws the guy getting out of getting to free agency earlier but ryan's a guy who stayed in marriott's his first year with the falcons the whole season because he was he, he was living on the edge and he was scared he's getting cut you know, so it's like I can't, I can't be too scared to buy a place. So I imagine a guy who has that in his background, you offer him any type of security, he, he sticks around. So I, yeah, he's probably their best guy other than Gino right now, which is crazy to say. Yeah, no, I mean it's a credit to what Ryan Neal has has developed into for sure. Well, Mike Sean, this is always so much fun to do. We look forward to talking to you again, maybe a little closer to the draft when you've watched more uh, film of these guys and we have a better idea of what the Seahawks needs are going to be. But this really did a terrific job of setting up their offseason for us. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I'm going to let you know if I can make the live draft. I should be able to, but hell yeah. I'll let you know. We we would love to have you. Oh, yeah. If you got taco time, that that's the... That sweetens the pot for sure. We'll, we'll have taco time. We'll have taco time merch. We'll have everything. I love taco time, man. I love it. But yeah, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. That was awesome. I, I really have to say thank you so much to Mike Sean for joining us. 
uh, one of our favorite uh, in- interviews that we do every year. And again, hope that Mike Sean can join us at Pelton Cast Live. Powerhouse guest at Pelton Cast Live has done. He did the virtual one. If anybody was there back in uh, uh, 2020, and then uh, was at Pelton Cast Live, the return last spring, and I I think the thing like just across the board is fun to hear Mike Sean talk about anything. But the thing that I'm left with after that interview, and I hope other other people feel the same or whatever. I guess maybe I don't hope that, but I'm assuming other people are going to feel the same is let's draft Anthony Richardson. <laughs> like I just hearing the job. It's funny, like hearing Mike Sean talk about all the players that the Seahawks liked. And he sort of like, I guess falls victim to the like narrative that the Seahawks are willing to weave about themselves. It's just like, they loved every player who turned out to be really, really good. And nobody mentions any of the ones that were bus. Or I right. mean, yes, but Baker Mayfield isn't really That's the type. only one. That's the one like, like there's like oh they love Mahomes or whatever like okay I do think that and they love Josh. He was knowing that they loved Josh Allen before Josh Allen became a good quarterback. I'll say I, I'll give them credit for that. I suppose that's true, but I do think I I just I I can feel it tingling. I saw Ben post about Anthony Richardson and there was like an amazing play that he made in the pocket through a dart after that, and it was one of those things where I kind of hadn't considered him as somebody who I felt like should be on the Seahawks radar. And he was like, you seeing this at Seahawks and he didn't actually take them because he's not a psychopath. And uh, the, I feel like the Seahawks could possibly find a way to make a couple, at least one other defensive first round pick plus Anthony Richardson, plus a handful of second round picks on the defensive side of the ball, plus even a wide receiver and bring back Gino next year. I think the Seahawks with Anthony Richardson best case scenario can have their cake and eat it too. They, they've set themselves up in a position where they can be competitive, but still slightly rebuilding with Gino, right? Like I wouldn't necessarily call next season's going to be a rebuilding year kind of no matter what, because they're going to have this influx of talent with all these draft picks. They haven't experienced go, that yet. Let's go develop in here. Sure. I, I think those are synonyms. Personally. No, rebuilding means you're losing. Development means you're playing young players and having success. Sure. I mean, they they kind of had that this year, but like these still have the young players that were on the roster this year, the good rookie core, adding in all these draft picks. I think there's a chance that they could do that and really get a long look at Geno Smith, understand who he is long term. And if Geno is great for another season, then that's awesome. There's no problems with that happening, right? Anthony Richardson if he were to be drafted by the CX, doesn't need to play next year. He doesn't even necessarily need to play the year after that or the year after that. But Geno Smith, in reality, is 32 years old, right? He's not going to be the quarterback for the next decade. And it would be a very good problem to have. Well, the good news is we have two months to figure this out. Oh, man. Before deciding. Right now. After talking we... to Mike Sean, I'm like, let's get this draft going. <laughs> Who we let's want to go, baby. Draft at Pelton Gas Live on April 21st. Woo! Really, I just want the sunshine. I'm just... I. <laughs> I care a lot more about the PDT very sunny than, I, than I do about it's cold. It was, I care more about the PDT than I do about the Pelton Cast Live, but uh, you know. Should we get into see our search for Seattle's best donuts, which took us yeah. this this week to a couple of very different locations? One not really a location at all, a pop up in Sonrisa Donuts, <laughs> and obviously you get the middle location, and the other a Seattle fixture in King Donuts, albeit one at a slightly different location than we're used to. Uh, let's start with Sinrisa 
which is named for the Spanish word for smile, uh, began during the height of the pandemic serving what they describe as brioche bomboloni, Italian filled donuts, with alternating fillings each weekend in pop-up locations. Would say, despite that description, to me, more similar, I would say, to the malasada tradition. Interesting. Yeah, I'm surprised to hear it. All of a sudden, I like it better because I heard the word Italian, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, it could steal 50 pieces if you started it every day. Um, but... I, I'm surprised to even parse the differences between those two things. So I went and read about this on Wikipedia, which is because anyone can edit it, you know, it's always right. Uh, Bumbaloni traditionally are filled from the top is one difference. So these are filled from the side like malasadas are or general cream filled donuts. But anyways, filled from the top, like what is what does the top mean? Like, like in the, the, the round part of the donut. Okay. Okay. As opposed to the, the side of the donut. I was going to say, how do you determine what's the top and what's the side? You can spin it around. Well, the, then... t- the top or bottom could be either. But the side, I feel like, is pretty clear. <laughs> I, you're you're I saying... I will risk it. We're getting already into email territory. But I, I just didn't know what you meant by filled from the top. And I was just like, you hold it vertically? Like... <laughs> I, I understand what you're saying, though. And so, but these were not that. I was trying to picture these particular donuts, and they were not filled from that is correct that direction. They looked like any malasadas I've had, if I'm being honest. Yes. So they've been, uh, you know, tremendously successful. You can pre-order a box of all five flavors or wait in line to buy the donuts individually. We did the pre-order last week. So last week's flavors were Ceylon milk tea, pear vanilla bean custard. Pineapple hibiscus, red velvet cream cheese, and young coconut pandan. So, which of these did you end up having? Uh, you definitely had the red velvet cream cheese. I think it might have been the coconut was the second one that I had, like a day old. Oh, you you didn't get to a day of? No. Oh, that's a that's a mistake. I mean, I had the red velvet immediately, so like I had one of them immediately. Like I understand what it tasted like. I know. Uh, I I thought that uh, I had the pear vanilla bean, and I thought that was maybe a little better than the pineapple hibiscus because just that it was more custardy. The hibiscus was a little different. It was more kind of jelly-ish, I guess. So so when we're talking about these types of donuts, we talked about this. Again, it's really strange that the comparison that I keep coming back to is ribs and – but I do feel like that's it, right? It's the the little bit of like – I don't want it to be crunchy on the outside. But you want to be able to feel a crust. You want to bite down on the crust and feel it to be sort of harder on the outside. And this will come back on King Donut also. Uh, Sort of the like harder edge on the outside that it's not hard, right? You don't want to be a crunch. You just want it to be a little bit of a a resistance. Firm? Maybe firm. It's it's almost like an indescribable thing, right? Like you just want it to be like you bite down. You can feel it in your tongue. And again, I just think it's 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 that ribs resistance. Right? Where if it's too soft, you've bitten right through it. You don't like that. You just want it to be a tug. Right? And there's that, and then you want it to be soft on the inside. So having those two things... Not everyone wants that. But I I don't think... If it tastes too much like bread, it tastes a little bit dry. Like, it could be a little bit dried out. That's what happens when, you know, it's days old. But I I mean, I had it immediately. And I think the one... I, I feel like that ratio... And we're we're comparing this to like, we're trying to find Seattle's best donut, right? Like we're trying to find the absolute best. These are very very high levels of donuts that we're competing at here. 
Correct. And really, General Porpoise is the one who's done something in a similar type of donut that I'm comparing this to. And to me, I had, again, apples to apples, one donut day of, one donut the next day. And I do think that that particular ratio, both the like, I, th- I thought the filling was probably a little bit better at General Porpoise and the like the resistance and the softness on the inside. I thought General Porpoise just did it a touch better. And so it's a little bit hard for me to say that this is Seattle's best donut because somebody who does it very similarly does it just a little bit better on the two things that I'm looking for the most with this type of donut. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty much my same note is that I felt it was a little bit too crunchy, maybe the relative to what I would prefer to do. And other people might prefer it differently. But yeah, I mean, I've said that uh, my plan is to specifically rank kind of general donuts and then filled donuts. And I, I do have this also behind general purpose in the filled donut. And I would say that it was oddly, unexpectedly, not the best bombolini. I had this week. Bumble, I guess it's Bumbalone if it's an individual one. But I'm not talking uh, about Portland yet. If you can't well, talk about your, your I know, I know. I'm just gonna just yet. I'm, 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 I'm unfaithful, cheating. Unfaithful to Seattle Donuts. <laughs> I don't think that's a fair description at all. But uh, yes, we'll we'll save that for the end. I, I I didn't look at this and say I didn't eat these donuts and say this has to be part of the bracket necessarily. Um, which going into it, I was extraordinarily excited. And again, these are ex- excellent donuts. Like I, I personally felt like I, again, all donuts are amazing. These are an extraordinarily high level. They're a little bit on the pricier side. They're closer to the general porpoise price, right? They're so like, high, if you're, they're actually higher than the general porpoise and price. even more expensive than general porpoise, right? So like, it has to be a pretty fucking good donut to be at that price point. Um, King donuts, on the other hand. So what, what is the history with King donuts? So do you know what King donuts was previously? So it's on Rainier Avenue, Rainier Beach fixture. And so previously it was in the complex that there was a Safeway. And King Donuts was the combination donuts, teriyaki, and laundromat. You don't remember this? This is a thing. So they have since moved, sadly. They are no longer in that location. They moved a few blocks. Three favorite things. (laughs) (laughs) They've moved a few blocks. Big laundry guy. North up Rainier Avenue, past Rainier Beach High School. They now operate in the same complex is King Philly Cheesesteaks, oh, which yeah. is a nice branding marriage between oh, the yes. two of them. You got King Donuts and King Philly Cheesesteaks right the there. Cheesesteak too. And s- s- exclusively now serving donuts as, as well as obviously coffee and, and other breakfast items. But uh, n- no teriyaki or, or laundry to be found at the new location. I'm just going to throw this out there. You know my feelings about teriyaki. You know my feelings about donuts. Right. These are the number one and number two foods. If we're ranking scents, scents, laundry is the number one scent as well. Oh, that's interesting because you know what's my number one scent? What? Freshly baked donuts. Hello. So I went to King Donuts on Friday and bought a dozen to bring to uh, a get together I was going to. And having them in my house all day and having that smell, it was amazing that any donuts managed to make it to that, that party. So you ate the donuts fresh, though. You went during the I, morning. Ate I the ate one fresh. donut fresh. I did. Okay. I think I did a maple bar fresh, and then later did a a like chocolate sprinkle ring donut. Okay. Uh, by the way, so King Donuts was has has been around for more than three decades, and even though it's new ownership, Free the revolution. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, without question. And even though they are under new ownership that took over, I believe, in 2016, still the same recipes, keeping true to the original creations and signature products we know and you love, according to their website. I I was I I would say I was considering that it's an institution. I don't know why I went into this being like, I don't know. Right? Maybe it was the revolution timing. I'm not sure. And I was like, I don't know. It's King Donuts. Come on. I was blown away by King Donuts. At the first, I mean, I looked at them and I was like, oh, fuck. Like, we are talking about some real ass donuts here. And with the first bite, I got a bacon maple bar. Which to me, the bacon maple is an interesting one because I, I think it can be a little bit ostentatious. It's certainly this, symbolic of Donuts 2.0. Like when you it, think of Voodoo Donuts, you think of the bacon maple. Sometimes you could see a bacon maple and just be like, the bacon maple talks to you, right? And it's just like, <laughs> I'm just two good flavors that go together, right? You know what I mean? Like, it's the same with Dojoy, right? When you look at Dojoy, they're just like, yeah, the donuts are vegan, but like, who the fuck cares, right? And it's just like, yeah, it's bacon and maple because these are two flavors that go together. Not because we're trying to get on the fucking evening news or whatever, right? These are flavors that taste good together. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're not trying to stand out. This isn't a pick-me donut, right? Like, these are donuts that just happen to pair a flavor of bacon and maple that are good flavors together. And that is why it was not, that's not why it was an incredible donut, but I really appreciated that about the donut. I got that and I got a Bavarian cream donut, which honestly, like the flavor in the Bavarian cream was a little strange and I loved it. Oh, like, like it, it's one of those things where I'd rather the flavor be strange than rich. If that makes sense. I don't want it to be like you bite into a Krispy Kreme donut and you're just like, like the whole way you're just like, woo, yeah, Krispy Kreme, good, 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 good. And you bite into their filled donuts and you're just like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, well, who decided? Is who very decided different. to put frosting in a fucking donut? Yeah, right. Like, I'm I'm good with it. You like it? I I I do enjoy the Krispy Kreme filled donuts. Wow, you're deeply wrong. I'm not saying but, they're Seattle's best donut, but I do enjoy them. It, it just it disgusts me when I bite into it. I'm like, we're so good. My teeth are biting down, and then they reach the middle, and I'm like, who who authorized this? And for this one, I was like, wow, this flavor is like a little bit off. But my favorite flavors are flavors that are a little bit off. Like that's really what I'm looking for. And again, anti-rich. We don't want to taste flavors that are super super rich. If I had it again, we are judging things at the highest possible level of donuts. We're talking about competing for Seattle's best donut is. They're very, very, like, greasy on the donut. It's a soft donut. And I think finding that crust on the, this was on the bacon maple in particular, finding that crust, it is, it is so soft when you bite into it that I think it could have used a touch more of a, like, differentiation between the crust and the actual donut itself. But to me, this is so firmly in the bracket. Like, it's not even a question about whether King Donuts was... Th- Wait, how it many- was how many donuts are firmly in the bracket at this point? How large is the bracket? We're doing 64, right? 68 now? No, th- this we, was... We have two months until Feldencast Live. Keep uh, in mind. And like 20 more places to go. I think that King Donuts is number three on the list for me. Maybe number four. It's it's in that range. We're, it's in that territory. So you have... Do you have it behind Top Pot? No. Oh, you have it ahead of Top Pot. I... Interesting. I'd have okay. To eat well, the then, donut to donut, but yeah. I, I think it is. No, I think fair. that's. I think that's the right range for them. I agree. 
I think right now it's Nathan Hennepin. It is Dojoy. It is uh, – I think General Porpoise probably has to be in there. And they're, currently the, they're currently the field donut leaders, although many more to come on that one. I th- I think that right now are the four that we're talking about. And again, I, so I you, eat this donut. Wait, so, you, so you think not top five? I think Top Pot hopefully will make the bracket. Interesting. Interesting. But, I mean, but we're I still very early in our search. When we're talking about the consistent, I, again, I've had it one time, but like it was a pretty fucking good donut. That You've I had, had it one time, but you know what it's been like for the past 30 years. Exactly. Is what I would tell you. So I, I just, again, I, I ate every second of it. I ate the, I had the whole experience. I ate the donut with joy. There was like, a whole crew, there was like a dad and he came in with like four kids in their karate outfits after Saturday morning was sunny as hell. And I was just like, literally, this there's nothing better on the face of the earth than this moment that I'm having right now. <laughs> Except if we're in April and PDT. April. <laughs> yes, the time zone. I would have preferred to have been in like June, July. Sure. August. Should I get into Portland Donuts? I... This this <laughs> such a random fight. Uh, I was looking through. We did. I had merch orders for an item of pink shift patches that were sold. And I saw if I see an address that's in Seattle, I'll just like look it up and be like, "Where's this address?" And I saw that one that was on Genesee Avenue, and I was like, "This motherfucker is so close to the hydroplane races parking." <laughs> and Mrs. Fantasy Genius told me it would be six minutes from that address to the Dick's Drive-In on Capitol Hill. And I was just like, this is some motherfucking Peltoncast geography that you're talking about here. Six minutes? Between that can't Park. possibly be true. She was like, oh yeah, I had a friend who lived right there and it was six minutes to Dick's. And I was like, first off, strange landmark to be like, to go between. I like it. I like it if we're judging Seattle time and distance based upon how long it is to the Dick's and Capitol Hill. And I was like, there's absolutely no fucking way that it is six minutes. I looked it up. And it is 16 minutes. Okay. Like, it's almost <laughs> it's gonna be like, I know that I'm normally driving around that area when there's hydroplane traffic, but there's no way that's that close to Capitol Hill. It's yeah, not possible. No, I, I, she said that. And I was like, this, I have to, it was one of those things where it was so flagrant. If it would have been, if, it, <laughs> if I would have been like, yeah, it's, if she would have been like, yeah, it's probably 15 minutes. I've been like, I'm not even going to look it up probably. But she said such an absurd number that I was like, you're a car I know. I know how far off you are on math. <laughs> Wow, she married into our bad man. It's a shame because our grandpa was probably the best at it ever. <laughs> the, one of the OG Carcinos is probably... Oh, like, geography? Yes. Yeah, no. Or like a distance between two places in the city oh. of Seattle. And he would have had to factor yes. in because he was not going on any freeways, just side streets. <laughs> he would have <laughs> he would have factored in just, just side streets, the distance. So it might have taken a little bit longer than you think because he was not getting on a freeway. Or maybe it was taking less time because he wasn't stuck in traffic. That's true. All right, Portland Donuts. So I went to a couple of locations while I was down in Portland for their home back-to-back this week. Uh, I guess we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, first off, Dough Donuts, which opened in 2016 as Portland's first all-vegan donut shop. So uh, in the same bracket is Mighty O and Dojoy. I don't. 2016? Well, I guess, I, yeah, vegan I don't know. people in Portland? You're not you, serving your community? Think. It sounds like they were not originally there, but uh, currently located in the heart of the Hollywood note neighborhood along Sandy Boulevard. And there... You're talking about Oregon, Hollywood, and Sandy Boulevard? 
Yes, yes. Those are those are places in Portland, Oregon. Portland, uh, Oregon. So I would say that their their menu is a little similar to JoJoy, I think, in terms of it doesn't change as frequently. There's more consistent options, but you know, really creative vegan choices. Not a ton of filled donuts, but they did have the matcha green tea bumbalone that I posted on Instagram. And let me tell you, that was that was right up there with any donut I've had in Seattle. Really? It was pretty incredible. You always do this every search. This is the most annoying thing you do, actually, uh, among many things. And you're just like, oh, yeah, we're doing the search for We were hitting 50 locations. And then you go to wherever, somewhere else. And then you're just like, oh, yeah, but that's actually the best. It's always fucking Portland, too. You're like, yeah, their ramen is way better than Seattle. Right? I, I, had, I had the ramen yesterday. The Fury it, it remains the Fury way, ramen? It, yes, it remains way better than Seattle. I, no way. No way. Oink is better. I love Oink. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's better. You were like, yeah, actually, Portland invented Seattle-style teriyaki. That's you. <laughs> you go to Portland, you're like, yeah, Seattle-style teriyaki. We all know it was invented in Portland, right? Uh, the other one I had was the peaches and cream rice pudding. The rice pudding... In the in the center was a, a little a little different with the the donut texture. It was very soft, kind of similar to the King Donuts in that regard. Their 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 raised ring donut, but uh, quite delicious in its own right. The other place I went earlier today before driving back to Seattle was Delicious Donuts, uh, which opened in two thousand five by a husband and wife duo. This is very much like a family affair. They have a family photo behind the the register, several on their website. And I loved that I went in there and there were regulars going in there who they knew by name and were greeting. Uh, I I felt like very much like an outsider because of it. Uh, as I posted on Instagram, one of the things that they have is a pretty faithful rec- re- recreation of Voodoo Donuts, Old Dirty Bastard Donut, which is uh, – there's two variations. There's one that has peanut butter and one that doesn't, but uh, – uh oreo and some frosting on top of that and let me tell you the cake cake donut lobby was appalled to see this <laughs> they definitely were shame on it that so that's one of my two go-tos at voodoo the other being just the the bavarian cream with maple frosting which used to be the mcminnville cream i don't think they call that that call it that anymore now that they've expanded more outside of the portland area uh, but this was very similar. It was a little more peanut butter heavy, but still quite good. And then I also had a, a solid Bavarian cream from them. Old dirty bastard, live and uncut. Uh, I I will say about this location, I, I don't know if I was that excited about the donut itself, but I will say scrolling through their Instagram, it was one of those things where it's like, this kind of brings it back to what we're talking about. And I feel like you have to kind of like give them credit to, it's just like, they're posting like we're going on our family camping trip. We're closed for three days. Yeah, and it's just like that's what we're fucking talking about here, right? Like we want high quality donuts made by just like people who are in a family or whatever, or like like people who are there as part of your community. It isn't Krispy Kreme coming in their fucking like weird frosting filling. And, you know? and this is something that also ties into King Donuts. I mean, it's very much donut shops have been part of the Asian immigrant entrepreneurial tradition in this country. So there's that element as well. And, and I think even beyond that, part of the community in a way, right? You mentioned like the regulars who are coming in. And I think I think that's an important piece of what we're talking about is donut places in general. The ones that have been successful, most of these locations we're talking about have one 
maybe two locations, right? The ones who are the competitors for Seattle's best donut at the moment are not the conglomerates, right? They aren't in motherfucking Fred Meyer. You know, they aren't in every QFC. And I do think that the quality does wane when you go to all of those different places. If you could have a top butt donut or say that you could have, you're like, you go into the Fred Meyer QFC. They're good for a grocery store donut. I'm not going to question that. They're, yeah, but, they're better than what you're going to get, what you got traditionally from the grocery store bakery, which are we going to do that at some point? Absolutely. We are doing Safeway, Safeway Albertsons is still in that tradition. Oh, yeah. No, we were doing Safeway donuts and it'll be like in a front to our taste buds. I mean, I, I, I will I, not I eat know. them. I will, I, I will say to me, I love every donut and I will not eat Safeway grocery store donuts. Oh, I, is, I've probably had more Safeway grocery store donuts than any other donuts in my life. And I mean, the replacement level of donuts is extremely high. They're still good. They're just not nearly as, as good. No, they're so bad. I, I deeply disagree with you. Like, I can't wait. Depends which ones you're getting. You got to be very careful with what variety you're getting. But the Bavarian cream they do is perfectly fine. Okay, fine. Sure, I'll accept that. And uh, maybe, maybe in extremes, we'll save it for what we do say for. Uh, but we do need to talk about those donuts at some point. So, like, the QFC Fred Meyer Top Pot donuts are good for grocery store donuts. But, like, the if Dojoy was in 50 locations, they wouldn't be as good. Yes. And that's the reality of what we're talking about here is, I mean, I appreciate that the owners of Dojoy don't have to, like, be there every day. It's, a, it's also only to open four days a week. No, uh, I think they they're open more than that now. I saw that on Instagram. Maybe Thursday to Monday now. So they're so. taking mini days off. It's not a like it's not a churn through it type of situation. But I, I appreciate that the owners don't have to be there every single day as they seem to be at Delicious Donuts. Uh, but yes. and like they could go on, go on a family camping trip. I love that for them. And I do love that it's just like it's partially like their life and partially a donut shop. And I'm like hell yeah, that's pretty fucking cool. They've intermingled the two without question. Yeah. No. I and that's that's. That's what this should be. We're not out here ranking corporate donuts. And first off, corporate donuts still suck. All right. With that. Kurt Cobain wore that shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to point that out because you didn't get the joke at first. I I did I need to acknowledge it? Anything else on donuts? No. We're into week two of Lil Woody's Seattle Burger Month, continuing this week with Unk's Fried Chicken Sandwich from Christy Brown of acclaimed comedian restaurant and bar uh, and that Brown Girl Cooks restaurant group. And uh, here's her description of it. The heart and soul of this dish is the fried chicken marinated in our house, says bland, blend, I should say, not definitely not bland, and fried to perfection. It is named after Uncle Mad Dog, the undisputed king of all deep fried foods. The sandwich represents my style of cooking with the tried and true that brown girl cooks flavors that people know from us. It is communion on a plate. Also, I, I guess not mentioned in the description is it comes on like basically uh, uh, a ciabatta, like a bruschetta, basically, not even a ciabatta. And it, which is like the most unique aspect of this fried chicken sandwich. It's also got onions. Uh, it, and it one of the things that created was like a variety of different flavors depending on the bite. Because there's some bites, the 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 bun is, you know, square and the, the fried chicken thigh is not necessarily the same shape. So you're getting some bites that include both, some bites that uh, include a lot of sauce in addition to it. 
uh, focaccia, reserved focaccia was the word I was looking for for the description of the bun here. Was, uh, there's also uh, black-eyed peat hummus, which is one of their tra- their uh, trademarks at communion, bacon aioli, which is quite good, grilled onions. So uh, a- another winner, certainly, in week two of Seattle Burr Month. Yeah, you brutalized the description, but the... I, you know, again, we're getting an email because I can't remember the word focaccia. It's because of the fact that in our Genoese dialect, we refer to it as fagasa instead of focaccia. That's what I'm going to blame it on. That's how we know. You said bruschetta, which is a very different thing. Uh, Right? Didn't you? Did I? I hope I didn't pronounce it bruschetta instead of bruschetta. Well, whatever. Uh, It looks incredible, though. I, I would eat the sandwich 10 out of 10. I also thought last week's was quite good. Yeah, it was a rare opportunity for you to get Seattle's Burger Month because I picked that up uh, while I was picking up the donuts from Sonarisa. So you have until next Monday to uh, check that out as part of week two of Seattle Burger Month. That's all we got on food. It is time for Coach's Corner. What can be said about my basketball coaching year? That cannot also describe the ever-given running aground in the Suez Canal and causing a blockage for six days, accruing a sum of nearly $900 million in fees. Nothing. As I ran aground over the weekend with a fourth consecutive loss by double digits, it was at least a record-breaking weekend. I officially became the first coach ever to call a timeout in a second-grade basketball game to, quote, work the refs, I assume. <laughs> I've done that twice this year. This was worse. Oh, the first oh. coach. I've got a description later. The first coach to have a player foul out by the third quarter when players are obligated to rotate rotate out of the game every five minutes, and the first coach to leave the arena without even as much as some disappointed eye contact from parents. <laughs> Nevertheless, we soldier on in a season which has been five weeks. It feels like an eternity. And look on the bright side. Even if the Ever Given only blocked the Suez Canal for six days, its long-term negative effects, much like my basketball coaching season, are still being felt to this day. <laughs> Is that according to the Wikipedia page, the negative effects still being felt? No, I think I might have made that up. Right. But I think I, they are. I think there's I don't, actually... I don't question it. I think it seems reasonable. I think there's another ship that actually was maybe blocking the Suez Canal. Mrs. Fan HC Genius uh, messaged me this on Saturday during the game. Called a timeout to yell at the ref with <laughs> your six-year-old son who acts as your assistant coach for the second grade team, following him with his hands on his tiny hips. Oh, I'm sorry. That that was originally the first message was Coach Kristen equals on one. <laughs> I was so mad. I was so mad. I, I like, I, I, I. I go back and forth between being like I was out out of line from being as upset about it. And also I had a player. The rules of the league in second grade are that you cannot steal the ball from a player while they're dribbling. And you also like look. It's not that I, I don't blame the other team for playing fast and loose with the rules. That's fine, right? It's on the referees to enforce those rules. And if we don't have rules, what are we doing here? Wow. We're living in a we live in a society. <laughs> But if I have 
second graders coming up to me, looking at me sad in the face, being like, why are they stealing the ball from me? I'm like, I have to do something about this. I can't just be like, hey, don't worry about it. Keep playing. I have to be like, it is my job. When this kid looks at me and being like, why are they stealing the ball from me? And I'm like, I got to defend my dogs out there. That is my job. This is what I've signed up for, right? And if the other team is stealing the ball, it is on the referee to stop action and to be like, that's an inbounds pass. You know what I mean? If there's somebody who's defending, they have wristbands to line up who they're defending with, right? And if there's somebody who's defending literally every single player on the court, then the referee has to be like, yo, we are going to run by these rules. That's it. I don't care if you're 15 years old. (laughs) I'm going to call a timeout and be like, I am coaching to the rules every single second, every single practice, every single game. Can we please enforce these rules? Who's it? Rashad Powell? I don't know what it is. I don't, is he like a semi-pro basketball player? Yes, he's, he's got some semi-pro experience. And uh, apparently he said, quote, it's a second grade basketball game. <laughs> Did he say that? He said that to Mrs. He was saying that on the sideline. It was like, I after I was like, I was pretty amped. Literally all I'd eaten during the day was King Donuts and Red Bull. <laughs> I had a cold brew coffee, King Donuts and Red Bull. That's what I'd eaten. So if you think that I wasn't well, amped about the referees. Them. This explains a lot. No, it doesn't, though. That's the thing, is if my players are having the ball stolen from them and the rules are you can't steal the ball, enforce the fucking rules. I told you to tell your players to steal the ball, and you were like, we were going to get called for it. We were. You probably weren't. He, it, when I talked to the referee, he was like, you're, he was like, I told your player to get off this other kid. There was like a dead ball, and I was like, I was up and about to rip this kid off the player. I was like, I don't know if you noticed, but I was up ready to be like, Brandon, get the fuck off him. You know what I mean? I was like, I am there. There's no coach. Go Chris with the second graders. I did the older kids. I kind of after. And I, I with the older kids, they scored three points in the second half. It's because of the coaching, though. All because of the coaching. James Bradbury out here, like, taking responsibility. Yeah, I held him. Um, I just... Accountability. <clears throat> anyway, I looked at one of the kids, or two of the kids, and I was like, score some fucking points to the kids and i thought maybe a little bit terrible coaching dropping no i was just like i'm putting you out here we've put you in the position and i was like i was i was giving them a role how about that i see and i thought that maybe it was like one of those things like a little bit of swearing might have like lit a fire under them or whatever that's what bob knight said too zero points it doesn't matter (laughs) i didn't i i had no issues with the ref the only interaction i had with the ref was him coming up to me and saying, did anybody ever tell you that you look like Leo Messi? And I was like, <laughs> matter of fact. Let me point you to a podcast where I talk about that. <laughs> I, I got to see your youngest son's, your youngest son play for the first time. <laughs> and he spent two quarters on the bench, even though his team only had five players because he was too upset that people weren't passing him the ball for him to play. No, he was upset that there was defense. <laughs> Oh, I guess he that said, was it. He said after, I was like, hey, if people are bothering you on defense, maybe go defend them on the other side. And he was like, I believe in personal space. <laughs> and I was like, honestly, like, I think you kind of have the right mindset. Maybe his fantasy genius is just just uh, socially distancing. Taught him everything he knows, especially when he threw the ball out of bounds. I think he was trying to throw to his teammate and then laid face down and started crying on the court. That was that was definitely my I feel like I really am just like my family is very present at these basketball games. Oh. We do not fade into the background at all. 
No, you don't. Jesus Christ. Well, you know who didn't fade into the background on one day? Matisse Thibel, who was making his Portland Trailblazers debut in their win over the Lakers and hit four three-pointers. It was a busy trade deadline for the Blazers, who traded Josh Hart to the Knicks, uh, got a first-round pick back, as well as Cam Reddish. Uh, Then on the actual day of the deadline, they acquired Thibel in a three-team deal. And then for like there was a a brief stretch, a glorious stretch of about an hour where Matisse Thibel and Gary Payton II, two of my favorite basketball players of all time, both Pac-12 defensive players of the year, both aggressive defenders, played together for the Blazers. And then GP2 got traded to the Warriors. Or so it seemed, because for over the weekend, that trade was in jeopardy after uh, the physical revealed some lingering effects from the core muscle surgery that GP2 had over the summer that sidelined him until his day Blazers debut in January. Ultimately, the trade did go through, although GP2 is not going to play for a month here. Uh, Blazers ending up in, in that one with Kevin Knox and second round picks. Uh, Matisse Seibel, uh like could not possibly have been a better Blazers debut with blocking a three, a couple of a steal, another deflection, all the three pointers as the Blazers pretty comfortably beat the Lakers at home. Then in game two, it was kind of a reality check as they didn't make any three as Matisse Thibault, I believe, scored two points and they lost at home to the Wizards, leaving them below 500 heading into the all-star break. But again, just... Uh, I, I think a reality check is not a fair way to describe it. They just missed the shots. It was a, It's a make-or-miss league situation. Both of them were. They made all the shots on Monday. They missed all the shots on Tuesday. But Dame is not going to miss shots. Like, there were shots where I was like, Dame does not miss those shots, and he did. I agree. They're not, but they're not, they're not like a 25-point team worse than the Wizards, obviously. They're not also probably, a, you know, they only ended up winning by 11, but were up by a lot more than that before uh, the deep bench came in, then the Lakers. Uh, Matisse will be a restricted free agent this summer, but I think a very good chance that he resigns with the Blazers. Uh, he talked about how comfortable he was being in the Northwest. He was talking about his comfort in the situation after the first game. So I asked him whether being in the Northwest was a part of it. And he talked about co- regularly going down to Portland with friends and knowing all the hikes and waterfalls around there. So, so fucking a... dumb. I'm sorry. Like, it's great or whatever, but this is fucking stupid. What are we talking about here? Seattle, Washington is right here. Where Matisse Thibel more or less grew up, right? I'm sure people will parse through. He grew up on the east side, whatever. That's not Seattle, et cetera. But like Matisse Thibel grew up in Seattle, Washington. The bet hikes and waterfalls are better here. There should be a goddamn basketball team. It's a bigger city. It's a better city. The donuts are better. Like, don't wow. even give me fucking the, the ramen is better. Fuck Portland. Why are we talking about basketball in Portland? This is stupid. It has been too long. I don't want to hear Matisse Thibel be like, I'm home because he went to goddamn Portland. It's not the that. same. But it's just like he's you're back in the ups- northwest. You're just upset that I had Portland Donuts, aren't you? No, I'm upset that right there behind me on Zoom are three Sonics players, and right there behind you are like six Sonics players. And we're talking about Matisse Thibel being home in Portland because some asshole 10 years ago or whatever decided that he needed to fucking prove a point to fucking... Well, Tristan, Tristan froze right mid-rant. Very appropriate. Where did we end at? I I... I don't I don't even know. I said something along the lines of Seattle's a better city. We have better hikes. We have better waterfalls. It was like about 10 years ago, someone wanted to prove a point, which was actually 15 now. 
15 years ago, some motherfucker decided that he needed to purge cities of their basketball team to get public money for arenas. And all of a sudden, we have to pretend that Matisse Thibel went to Portland growing up. It's fucking horseshit. No one, I'm sorry. I mean, it is fucking horseshit. It is not Seattle. That's Seattle. That's Seattle. This is Seattle. Portland is not Seattle. This is where basketball is meant to be. We're going to talk about the UW Huskies later. God, I wish they would fucking move. Well, Just they the won team. instead. Not, I know. God, even worse. The the Huskies have put me in a position that I cheered for Oregon today. Not Kaylin DeBoer, by the way. Football team firmly should stay. And softball and baseball and rowing, of course. What was the other and sport? Soccer? soccer, yeah. yeah. Uh, tennis. I don't know if there's a pickleball team. Anyway, it's really just basketball. Are we moving on to them yet? Let's talk, get into the rundown, starting with the Mariners. Uh, a little bit of news as they start spring training. Jerry DePoto told reporters Wednesday that Taylor Trammell suffered a broken hamate bone in his right hand when he was hit in the hand working out before spring training. You'll recall that King Griffey Jr. broke his hamate bone in June 1996, had it removed, which is the typical treatment, returning a little less than a month later in that wow. case. That hamate bone must be horseshit. Just <laughs> bullshit. Boom. Just remove it. Apparently, it's so small that the healing is questionable. This so they is on the Spider Man catch, though? No, that was a broken wrist. Okay. The hammer bone is slightly different. This was the following season. So he didn't miss nearly as long as in 95 when he had the wrist injury. Got That's it. what I thought, first thought as well, until I looked it up. Uh, Seattle Kraken playing without Andre Burakovsky, who was placed on injured reserve with a lower body injury last week and is week-to-week, -week, according to Ron Francis, so could miss an extended period. A rough start to post-All-Star play with losses by a combined 13-4 to margin in their three games in the NYC Metro to start the second half against the Islanders, Devils, and Rangers. They bounced back Sunday to hold on for a 4-3 win over the Flyers before the Super Bowl. Uh, the worst loss that happened for Philadelphia that day clearly uh, wrapped up a road trip Tuesday by taking a point in a shootout loss in Edmonton. They entered Wednesday's play clean to third in the Pacific, just two points back of Vegas for first, but one ahead of Edmonton for fourth. Kraken back home Thursday for a pair of games against Philadelphia and Detroit with a one-off road trip to San Jose next Monday. Uh, Sounders and OL Reign jointly announced the second doubleheader in their franchise's history we'll, featuring both of them will take take on their rivals from Portland. Mm. <laughs> mm. Will take place on Saturday, June 3rd. Sounders will play first this year at 1.30 followed by Rain Thorns at 5. So, uh, uh, we'll see how that matches up. I think it's the off day during the NBA Finals, actually. So I, I can definitely go to both of those. We'll just cheer on Portland because that's basically Seattle, according to Matisse Thibel. Did not say anything. No, I'm not. I'm not mad at Matisse Thibel. I'm mad that we. It's true. We have to do this, right? We cheer for the Blazers. They're our natural rival in every way, and we're like, Woo, you're drinking out of a Blazers cup right now. That is true. They're not our natural rival. Utah Jazz are our natural rival. I guess I wore a Martel Webster jersey to basketball practice yesterday just because he's from Seattle, though. Uh, the Sounders also announced the Bruce Lee kit is this season's community kit honoring the legendary martial artist with Seattle ties 50 years after his untimely death. Designing collaboration with Lee's daughter, Shannon, in the Bruce Lee Foundation, uh, up to 50000 from jersey sales in the first 30 days will be donated to the Bruce Lee Foundation and Seattle's Wing Luke Museum. It's a pretty awesome-looking jersey. They did a great job with this one, as they did with the Jimi Hendrix kit last year. 
Other OL Rain news, OL Rain and their parent group, Olympic Lyonnais, announced a strategic partnership with Club America of Liga MX Femenil, which will include Club America visiting for a friendly on February 25th at Starfire. Probably won't see many of OL Rain starters in that preseason friendly because it comes three days after the final games of the She Believes Cup hosted by the U.S. Women's National Team. Five Rain players are on the U.S. Women's National Team's 23-player roster for the competition, with Megan Rapino returning to U.S. WNT action alongside midfielder Rose Lavelle and defenders Alana Cook, Sofia Huerta, and Emily Sonnet. Quinn and Jordan Heidemo will also be participating for Canada, with Brazil and Japan rounding out the round-robin field for the She Believes Cup. Uh, some storm news off the court is the Wall Street Journal reported last week that uh, the Storm's ownership group sold 15 minority stakes to uh, investors at a $151 million valuation for the franchise. A remarkable figure in the context of women's pro sports franchises costs. As we noted recently, the NWSL's two new expansion franchises in the Bay and Boston came at $50 million expansion free fees. The story also confirmed that although the official price for the storm when purchased by Force 10 Hoops from the ownership group that moved the Sonics to Oklahoma City to your dismay was $10 million, they actually paid just $1 million for the team because revenue failed to hit targets that would have produced the full price. Uh, adding investors will help storm ownership pay for the team's new practice facility with construction started to begin next month, according to the Wall Street Journal. You told me I had to move fast, so I can't even I can't go any tangents here on the uh, court the storm signed veteran guard yvonne turner and post Teresa plaisance turner was a key player for phoenix for three years including the 2018 semifinals against the storm has played just nine games all last season since 2019 will have to make the team out of training camp plaisance got a larger non-guaranteed deal is perhaps the best post option left on the market for the storm she's played nine wmba seasons including spending last season as a reserve with the eventual champion Las Vegas Aces. UW softball Hello. debuted last weekend and went an impressive four and one in the Mark Campbell invitation, beating number two, 19 Duke four to three behind three pitchers and shutting out San Jose and Liberty before falling five, four in a thriller to top ranked <laughs> Oklahoma on Saturday night. Our natural rivals. That legitimately, yes. Lindsay Lopez started and allowed five runs in two and two-thirds innings uh, before freshman Ruby Malin came on in relief and threw three scoreless innings, but the Huskies could not score in that span. They also beat Loyola Marymount on Sunday. With those results, the Huskies moved up two spots in the rankings to number 14 in the college softball polls. This weekend, the Huskies will participate in the Houston Classic, playing Hofstra and host Houston twice each, as well as Morgan State. They then face stay in Houston to face McNeese State next Monday. You know, women's basketball got a bit of a reality check last weekend against two ranked foes uh, uh, traveling to the Mountain Schools. On Friday at Utah, El Ladine had 18 points and five assists off the bench, continuing continuing her strong play that saw her named Pac-12 Freshman of the Week the previous week. But the high-scoring Utes piled up 92 points in a 23-point win. Sunday, the Huskies struggled to score, putting up just 28 points through three quarters in an eventual 22-point loss at Colorado. Ladine came back to earth with seven points on three of 10 shooting as no UW player reached double figures. This weekend, the Huskies close out their home schedule by hosting the Oregon schools uh, with UW and USC kind of emerging back on the scene in Pac-12 women's basketball. The counter to that has been or the Oregon schools struggling. Oregon State 
comes in tied for 12th in the Pac-12 at a surprising 3-11 and on a six-game losing streak. The Beavers made seven con- consecutive NCAA tournament appearances before missing out last season. This will be the worst conference record for them since the year before that streak began. The Ducks also suffering through their worst year in quite some time at 5-9 and nine in conference play. Even with UW in the standings, they've dropped their last five, albeit four of them against ranked opponents. Oregon ranked itself through mid-January in the start of the slide, but now clinging to one of the last four buys in the latest ESPN Bracketology. Sunday's matchup with the Ducks will be senior day for three fifth-year seniors who spent their entire careers on Montlake. Haley Van Dyke, who joined the 1,000-point club earlier this year and reserves Darcy Rees and T.T. Watkins. Also, sixth-year senior Trinity Oliver, a starter for UW the last two years after transferring from Baylor, where she won a national championship. Grad transfer Emma Grothaus and Lexi Grigsby, who hasn't played since 2021 due to injury. UW men's basketball in one rivalry, a 56-51 loss last Saturday at Washington State, where they were scoreless for more than six and a half minutes to start the game. Still somehow took an 11-10 lead barely four minutes later, but the Cougs used an 11-row run late in the first half to take the lead for good. Huskies got as close as two with 126 to play before Wazoo scored the next four to put it away. Wednesday, the Huskies hosted Oregon in a game that was delayed by nearly a half hour by an issue <laughs> with the rim, starting at like 8.40 Pacific time and taking us well into our interview with Mike Sean. So I didn't see the end of this, but Keon Metafield with a huge performance to lead the Huskies to a 72-71 overtime win, a pretty improbable uh, when Braxton Mia spent a lot of time in foul trouble and it seemed like that was going to be the end for the Huskies, but uh, uh, still went to OT after Infali Dante tied the score for Oregon with 13 seconds to play in regulation. In the extra session, Jamal Bay delivered a layup to put the Huskies ahead with 28 seconds left and the Huskies got a stop on the final possession with Corn Johnson blocking Will Richardson's layup in the closing seconds. Uh, Metafield in this one had 27 points on 11 of 15 shooting as well as seven assists. Uh, Corn Johnson spark off the bench with nine points. Keon Brooks Jr. with 14. Braxton Mia had 12 and eight. Still managed in four blocks. Still managed to play 32 minutes despite, despite the four fouls that he got early in the second half. So Huskies now 14 and 13, six and 10 in conference play before they host Oregon State on Saturday. The most Husky thing to do, of course, would be to beat Oregon in overtime and lose to Oregon State, who uh, started Pac-12 play by beating the Huskies on December 1st when they were coming off a pair of losses to Portland State as part of a four-game losing streak uh, heading into Pac-12 play. They did then finish non-conference play much better in that stretch between those couple conference games and the real start of the conference season. They lost their next seven Pac-12 games before beating Lowly Cal on January 22nd. Since they do have a couple of good wins, beating Colorado and USC at home, they are 1-7 in, in Pac-12 road games, ranked outside the nation's top 300 in three of the four factors on offense, all but free throw rate, and number 276, not just in offensive efficiency, just outside the top 100 on defense. You add in their slow pace as they rate 341st in adjusted tempo, and they've held opponents below 60 points in all three of their conference wins since beating UW. Now, I think you're misunderstanding what the most UW thing is that could happen here. And it's not losing Oregon State. It's a winning out. It's going on a little run, getting to like 10 and 10, 9 and 11, 
in Pac-12 play and Mike Hopkins running it back for another year with nobody who could shoot on the roster. In a sport where literally all that matters is three-point shooting, having another season with nobody who could shoot, where by the month of March or February, mid-February, we're just like, games are happening. <laughs> games are certainly happening. They keep happening. They, they don't They don't stop coming. Let's wrap up with Husky football. Uh, Ohio State, the big news, canceling their home-and-home series with UW that was previously set for 2024 and 2025. Now, what was the, what was the logic for this one? You know, my take was that Ohio State is probably like setting up for a an SEC style. Like you play no one out of conference because of the fact that your conference is good enough that you don't need to. They do still have a lot of marquee foes left on their non-conference schedule, including I think they play Texas in 2025. So that was probably part of it that like Texas and UW was a pretty difficult slate for them in 2025. So we'll see if they continue canceling games. But uh, certainly not like encouraging for the state of non-conference play for this to happen. And now the Huskies have to try to replace these games on very short notice. It's going to be a very strange next five, ten years for college football. Eventually, college football will settle down, but until we get there, I just look at this and I'm just like, cool off, dude. You know what I mean? Like, Ohio State is obviously, like, one of the programs around the country. And the Big Ten is feeling real good about themselves right now. You know what I mean? And we've talked about this over and over and over again. Ohio State's not going to be one of the programs that gets left behind. Uh, But, like, there's just an element right now around college football of people feeling themselves, feeling real good about who they are. And I just, I I feel like this kind of, like, reads into that where Ohio state is like, what do we need with the university of Washington? It's like, I mean, they're a better program long-term than the university of Washington. I'm not going to deny that their conference. And a lot of the schools around their conference are not better than the university of Washington long-term at football. And I, I, maybe there's a little bit of a fear of competition. Maybe they are moving this sec model. I think there are going to be some things that happen around college football that, people are real confident about what things look like in the moment and long-term may set themselves up for disaster or for being in a worse position. So that that's kind of, I, I, I just feel like right now there's an area of power around college football and I'm not convinced that that's going to exist forever. I mean, the power is going to stay what it is, but yes, the, the power the will, Ohio State. won't stay what the power will stay with. I agree. Right. Northwestern, whether the power will stay with them is a different question. Uh, some other UW football news. 2024 quarterback recruit Austin Mack, who committed to the Huskies at the start of fam- February, announced that he will reclassify to the 2023 class and join UW this summer. That will give the Huskies a third scholarship quarterback following Sam Heward's transfer. Doesn't Austin Mack just sound like a quarterback who transferred from UW? Right? <laughs> Like in, in like stuff. three years, we'll be like UW transfer Austin Mack is starting for wherever, right? Like it, literally, his name is just like yeah, transferred from UW. Now he's starting at UCLA. <laughs> I don't know where you get that. He just his name sounds like Austin Mack is the name of a player who transferred from your college. 
it it reminds me of the secret life of Alex Mack, but uh, maybe maybe that's a too specific a reference. I saw that and I was like, he'll never start for UW. I, why, I why would you say that? Because he's going to transfer. His name sounds like he's I already mean, look, transferring now. A, a majority of quarterbacks transfer, but I don't know that there's anything about Alex Mack specifically. It's, Austin, it's, Austin Mack. I'm sorry, Austin, Austin Mack. Or no, his name. Alex Mack, maybe he'd start, but only an offensive <laughs> line. <laughs> Austin, Austin Mack. It's fine. He just you you could literally like bet every single incoming freshman quarterback that they won't that they will transfer, and you'd probably do quite well. I mean, that is accurate. I don't dispute that. Especially if their name is Austin Mack. But that's awesome. That's cool. All right. Lastly, on UW football, the spring preview, which we used to know as a spring game, set for Saturday, April twenty second at one p.m. So if you really want a great weekend, you Pelton Cast Live. Friday, April 21st, then UW Spring Preview, April 22nd. Most importantly, what you should do, avoid the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> Maybe ideally a Kraken playoff home game on Saturday, April 22nd, that evening. There we Hopefully go. not on the 21st. Let's speak that into existence. I That would be a lot better. Anything that is not going to go see the St. Louis Cardinals at T-Mobile Park. That I mean, is, you do you don't want that experience. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You don't, you don't. want it on you don't want it on Friday night, but Saturday and Sunday you might want to be there just to limit the number of Cardinals fans who are there. Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. For me, it's an avoidance thing. It's getting like, as far away. From it's like a Blue Jays fans. weekend. I get it, but I just uh, Cardinals we, fans. We uh, need to make sure the Mariners are there. Are you have to be around it, and that's not a thing that I want to do personally. But if you would rather do that than coming to Pelton Cast Live, that's on you to have fun. For me, I'll be at Pelton Cast Live where there's uh, Big Go, Come Hungry, Talking Taco Time, brand new Pelton Cast merch. You've seen it. It looks very, very nice. Uh, hopefully, Mike Sean Dugar from the Ringer NFL Draft Guru, Danny Kelly, Pelton Cast Live, April 21st at Belltown Yacht Club. Are we going to our special segment or no? <laughs> no, we did it like at the start of the pod, remember? No, 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 not that one. Wait, which special segment? The other segment that we did, we recorded post Super Bowl. Uh, no, we are definitely not. We're like right. three hours into this podcast. Well, next week. <laughs> Stay tuned. And on, on that, that note, note. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks. Reservant edition. <laughs> not the intro edition. That's all we know it is. Randy Johnson, Reservant. Wolfman to Tupu. I'll accept that. There is a stat that somebody tweeted was like amount of hits through the age of 28. I want to say of people who reached the 3000 hit club. And I was like, Luca, who do you think had the least? I was trying to trick him. And he was like, each row. And I was like, I hate that you're good at this. <laughs> oh, he's better at it than you. He would oh, no, he's you. oh if I would have said like fucking Ty Cobb or something like. I'd be like, I don't, why are you asking me this? Eddie Marie? I don't know. Go the hell away. <laughs> he was just like, each row. That's a classic Tristan parenting. And then I went on a long rant about how hits aren't that important. There's <laughs> something about George Sisler in there. Literally, literally the only reason that hits are important is because they're a thing you can count. <clears throat> I mean, I don't think that's the only reason they're important. It's not the 3,000 extra base hits club. That'd be impressive. <laughs> it's a club of zero. Dude, there's no, like, doubles club, right? Like, they, we don't choose a number. Again, it's an arbitrary number. It's just, like, 3,000. Again, most of the players who have 3,000 hits are good. Nietzsche they're just happens they're to all arbitrary. Order. It is true. I just, 
I was explaining to Luca. I was like, you see that stand-up triple you got on Sunday? That's what you should be going for. Not a slap single. Why not both? He's why can't you have a stand-up triple and a slap single at the same time? What do you well, mean why not different both? at bats? I'm saying I don't think that like also Ichiro probably hit a lot of triples. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> it seems very likely that he hit a lot of triples. Edgar is not as high on the career doubles list as I would have expected for someone who led the league twice. He just had he didn't really have that many years, right? He didn't, no, but uh, he is fifty-fourth all time. Doubles? Yeah. Did you know that Softy sponsors uh, Edgar's baseball reference page? Really? What? Are we still on Jermaine Curse or no? No, because we let it lapse. The period when they like. This is the worst thing you've ever done. <laughs> the Pelton cast did not exist during the period of time where, where the sports reference pages were locked in place forever. So we, we could missed have, out. We could have been that one. If we would have known that that was going to happen, we could have gone through and sponsored. Oh, obviously. Them. Yeah. <sighs> This is the worst part of the Pelton cast. I was watching the like abridged. I watched the abridged 2013 and 2014 NFC championship games. First off, the main takeaway that I had was not even about Jermaine Curse. Doug Baldwin is so good. Yeah. Oh my God. I feel like we don't, we cannot talk about Doug Baldwin enough. He oh, was not as high on triples as I would have expected. 176th all time. He did start when playing when he was like 30. It turns <laughs> he out probably that lost a lot of speed. You'll you'll look at the leaders in triples on baseball reference, and all but one of the headshots are in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> it's because the fields were shaped differently. <laughs> like what was I getting, so. getting the ball lost at Ebbets Field. <laughs> they didn't know that you were like not supposed to make outs on the bases. Yeah, it's a very <laughs> Very old school list. That's suffice it to say. <laughs> Wally Pip had more triples than you would think. Wow. I how, many, how many triples did I would I think that Wally Pip? <laughs> I, I don't know. He seems very slow. <laughs> that does he? His name's Wally Pip. He's a, he's a first baseman. Is They're he? not known for their speed. Yeah, he famously took Lou Gehrig's spot. That's the whole story. You think you I know, know the expression? I would have guessed that Lou Gehrig was a right fielder. You think I know what position Lou Gehrig played? I I guess I did. DiMaggio was a right fielder, right? No, he was a center fielder. Center fielder? Babe, White guys in center field back Babe then? Babe Ruth is ahead of Ichiro in all-time triples. Wow. It really makes you think. This is Joe DiMaggio. <laughs> there has to be some reason that there are a lot of triples back in the day. I think there like, are many everyone's reasons. Everyone's taught defenders how to play the ball off the wall. <laughs> It was interesting, though. Okay, so my Sam Haggerty thing was there was a clip that the Mariners had today. First, first off, I think it was on the 13th, the Mariners tweeted, baseball things are happening, which was just like, I love seeing that because it's like, it's not baseball, but baseball things are happening, which is kind of perfect. And then there was a clip of Sam Haggerty playing the ball off, literally just like a brick wall. And they were teaching him how to play the ball off the wall. And I was like, I love that in baseball, you just use the whole facility and Dave Wainhouse talked about that. And he was like, I used to go to spring training. And he was like, I didn't do that much work with the catchers and shit like that. It was like the amount of reps you can have with actual catchers, if there's 50 pitchers, is very, very little, right? Because there's only a handful of catchers. So the amount of like actual pitching you can do is not that much. And he was like, I used to go to a brick wall 
and I would draw an X on the wall. This is he's literally in the major league baseball. And he's like, I would draw an X on the wall and I would try to hit that X by throwing the ball at it as many times as I could. And I was just like, why does major league baseball sound like you're just out in the backyard with your buddies <laughs> or whatever? And then I saw that Sam Haggerty thing and I was like, it's kind of true. There's just like a position coach throwing the ball off a brick wall and Sam Haggerty was learning how to field it. It's like, it doesn't feel that far off. I don't, from like I don't like the way you're saying learning how to field it. As if you'd like never fielded the ball off a wall before. Sure. And like he's doing something that Joe DiMaggio could never. <laughs> the defenders of Babe Ruth's era <laughs> never, never once thought about fielding the ball off the wall. Oh, Lord. Well, I look forward to that special segment whenever it comes.